What's one thing that you would add to your game as a DM that your players probably wouldn't agree with that you really want to add? That I really want to add? Yes. Oh my God. Um, I have been trying to add an economy to my homebrew game for like three freaking campaigns now in this world and nobody is biting on it. I, I, I have trade routes and shit where it's, I have put way too much time and effort into, into the, the economy and how money works. I have like four different kinds of money with different levels and there's different like subcultures that use different coins. Like, you know, I, I have a problem. Like one culture trades with beads and then another one with gold and no, literally kind of different, different shaped coins. Like the, the base one is still copper, but the two triangles are worth one square because the triangles are, are a poorer, um, poorer country than, than square. Right. So I've really, I have really dug into the economy and the trade routes. And I mean, as monsters become more prolific and they actually start to like carve out territory, they start to want to trade like manticores and shit, right? But they're trading in like pelts and furs. So like it's it's complicated and nobody nobody cares. Nobody. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna, I'm gonna write myself a little novel about about <laughs> fake fictitious trade patterns I, I i feel like that's something you have to hand out an insert for right i like, did that's something you have to have a campaign that is dedicated to a trade company you guys work for a trade company go what about you kyle yeah. uh whoa. i don't i honestly don't know yeah i i think i'm a pretty reasonable person so i can't say that there's any one thing that i want to add that people wouldn't be happy about, I guess. James? For me, it would be sacrificing max hit points to get that additional spell slot. Oh, but I'm biased so, to casters, so yeah. I know my martial classes would not appreciate that. Yeah. So are you saying they have to give up one hit dice for an additional... You, if, when you are all out of like all your shit and you want one more attack, you roll a hit dice and whatever that is, you're losing that max hit points but it can't be returned with any kind of spell, any kind of anything. You get one hit point back per long rest. So there's still a cost to it, but it allows the casters to go an extra mile. Interesting. Like they're giving up their life force. Yeah, you're giving a part of your life force to get that spell off. I kind of like that. You know, it's it almost sounds like negative temporary hit points. Essentially. You could do that, though, for the marshals for, um, for additional sneak attack damage. Or if I don't uh, want to or key points, <laughs> or action surges, or second wins, or rages. You could find a way to, to do it, but it would have to be worth... I'd I never said I wanted it to be fair, though. I just said I wanted to give this to casters. Okay, all right. Okay, 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 okay. So it sounds like something you want as a player. Yes, but I'd love to give it to other casters to see how they use it. Okay. I will the tell casters you right now. a glass cannon. You're giving away 6 to 14 hit points. That could kill you. With a simple hit after that, so is it worth the risk? I can tell you right now, most players will forget that's even an option. Yes, and the player who does remember will blow their party's mind and make a great session. And be a withering corpse at the end. Only if they get hit. <laughs> It's a Mimic, the roundtable Dungeons & Dragons discussion, where you never know what you're going to get. to another episode and our conversation on Dungeon Master Tips. I'm Adam and with me today are James and Kyle and this episode is called Stat Blocks. 
how to assign, define, and align the benign and malign baseline design. God, who writes this shit? Anyway, we've previously covered a lot in our conversation on dungeon mastering. We've talked about prepping for both your campaign and your upcoming session, how to create villains and horror, how to utilize different campaign styles, where to steal inspiration from in pop culture, and what to do when a player character dies. We've gone over our insights on homebrewing, running the game between sessions, dealing with problem players, attacking the character sheet, and giving out non-standard rewards. And of course, there were five episodes that broke down all the different condition effects, and a couple of episodes on running mob monsters. We even dedicated an episode to aquatic rules. You can find all of these episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and dozens of other podcast apps, or you can jump over to YouTube and dig into the entire playlist on Dungeon Master tips that we've built there. Last time we discussed Dungeon Mastering, we covered power creep and why you should manage the mechanics more closely. This time, though, we're going to tear apart the stat blocks for monsters and NPCs and see what our experiences have taught us about reading between the lines when it comes to deciphering your monster stats. But before we get started, I have to ask James and Kyle, do you two ever check online for rules errata, uh, sage advice columns, or Wizards of the Coast announcements, or any of the behind-the-scenes bits and pieces? Uh, I'll be honest, no. Not until this actual episode. I normally just wait for it to come out in book form, and then that's when I'll pay attention. James, Rarely for a useful reason. Like, sometimes I'll look it up just to see what crazy shit is out there, especially with something like uh, Unearth Arcana. Or I'm trying to do something in a game I'm a player in that I'm trying to bend rules as written, so I'm looking up rules online. So, it, but you're not hunting down to see what the latest announcement this month is or following, no. following only Unearth Arcana is what I occasionally look at just to see what crazy stuff's down the pipeline. Okay. I honestly try to keep up to date on that stuff, but it's such strange little minutiae most of the time and it doesn't affect most games. It's very, uh, you know, use case only. Um, so I, I don't even dig into it. I understand that we live in a world now where video games get constant patches all of the time you're fairly likely every time you log into an online game to have to sit there and wait through an update um and there's not really a great way to do that for dungeons and dragons um outside of them becoming entirely an online resource through like dnd beyond but it makes it so that when they start to to do big changes if you're not in the know it can get a little bit fucky and they have started doing these big changes um, over the last few books. And while you can jump online and see the many, many opinions people have about it for the average person that's just picking up a book, it could be really confusing. So hopefully we can have a little bit of, um, of insight to provide to people about what these changes are, these big changes uh, and uh, specifically things like alignment and whatnot. Um, but how it affects you and your role-playing and strategy and whatnot for your monsters and your enemies and your NPCs when they when you have a stat block in front of you. There's a lot of information in a stat block that I don't think most people see. They see AC, HP, and then they'll look at movement and actions, right? But there's a lot of really cool stuff kind of hidden between the lines. Um, I'm excited to get into this. For those of you who haven't figured it out yet, we're not all in the same room. We're doing this through a Zoom call because. Um, Kyle has syphilis and James is, uh, has a restraining order against me. So um, uh, so bear with us if the uh, audio quality is not 100% what we're used to working with uh, until we um, get, caught, get Kyle that uh, topical cream and uh, James comes to his senses. We're going to have to continue to record like this for a while. I'm just waiting so, for the penicillin to kick in, okay? 
<laughs> Look, man, stop eating moldy food out of your fridge and go to a doctor. You're not my mom. <laughs> I could be. <laughs> Thank God you're not, though. <laughs> yeah, I don't know which one of us is more relieved, Kyle. <laughs> but why don't you uh, why don't you start us off? Let Let's talk about. So you have the stat block of strength, dex, constitution, um, intelligence, wisdom, and charisma. And most people will look at that really quickly to see how strong is this monster. But before you even get to that, there are entire sections of information about a monster that a lot of people skim over. So Kyle, why don't you why don't you start us off with the very first thing that presents itself when you look at uh, entry in the monster manual or Volos, for example. All right. Uh, so the first thing you're going to come across is the lore, which is arguably my favorite part of the stat block. Um, you know, it's it, it, it's generally a pretty short blurb, uh, and I always try to supplement my knowledge uh, through a little Googling on top of it. It's important because it gives context to where you might be able to find any given monster, how it would fit in with the overall theme of an adventure or a campaign. Uh, how that monster might act in an encounter, whether it be social or combat, and give you clues on how to set the scene around it. You know, like, uh, let's take the basilisk, basilisk, for example. In the lore, it states that you will generally find realistic stone statues, wildlife with bites taken out of it around the basilisk's hunting ground, which can provide some nice scene setting um, to your players uh, to set them on edge, adding a little extra drama before the fight, and maybe giving them some clues as well as to what they're going to come across coming up. Uh, it's a, a fun little way for you to get more invested in any given creature. Uh, and I don't know how to help you figure out how to fit it in. One of the interesting on. things about this, too, is you're going to get a lot of environmental notes and and uh social notes depending on if they're intelligent creatures or not right yeah. so you get more than just combat encounters out of it when you're sitting there going what exploration encounter can i get out of a basilisk well it's in the lore section most people just skip it because they see ooh big scary monster on the in the art and then read the the stats to read the math yeah exactly right and it also so let's say uh your party is going underground right so it's not just looking for the first creature that comes along. Okay, where am I? Am I in the underdark? Um, am I in a plains? Am I in a swamp? Like, it really helps you find the right monster for the scenario. Yeah, absolutely. I love the lore section. I, I think that, especially in 5th edition, they've done us a disservice by having it traditionally be so short. That's why I like Bolos and Mordenkindens and Fizzbands so much, because they expand on the lore more than they expand on the mechanics. Yeah. I, I mean, you have so many monsters, though, it's hard to fit it all in anywhere. No, more right. monster manuals. A new monster manual every year. <laughs> uh, like, uh, there should be a new monster manual for everything. So you got Theros, you should have a separate monster manual for that. Yeah, I'm all about it. Look, look, if it was up to me, I would 100% be dropping monster lore books. Like, even PDFs. As... as yeah. As Wizards of the Coast, I would have just this like free every month PDF. Uh, here's a bunch of lore and uh, environmental shit about hook horrors this month. Next month, it's going to be about Megman. And the month after that, it's going to be about giant sharks, right? Like, and I'm just going to randomly select, well, probably not randomly, but but I will select seemingly at random uh, different um, different monsters to focus on and release these additional bits and pieces. When you have enough of them, you can pile it. 
You put it in a nice, pretty hard cover, get all sorts of awesome art, add 10% new shit and you sell it, right? It's not that hard to do. People will fucking love you. Yeah, actually, that's a great idea. It's also a great way for community involvement, right? Like you can make a contest out of it. So this time we're doing, let's go with hook horrors, right? So submit your best hook horror lore or another underserved monster, right? And then pick that and work it into the whole the whole scheme. Well, I would do it a different way where after you've released 10 monsters, say, you go to the community and say, now write a campaign. Whoever submits the best campaign with those 10 monsters will get included in a book. And that book goes out with a mini campaign with the monsters that were covered. I like that. You could do it on an annual basis too, where, hey, you know what? 2022's Reptiles, and then you have two or three different UNT parts in it. And so then whoever has the best thing gets an officially published mini module, right? Um, and then uh, the next time around, it'll be an aquatic theme. And after that, it'll be under dark. And then maybe it's all plants or into the Feywild or, or whatever it is. Like there should be like themes to it as well. So you're not having people just try to slam together freaking, you know what? We're totally off topic. Okay, hold on. What stat was? <laughs> here we are. Here we are creating a wizard should run their business model. Continue. That's a stat block. <laughs> uh, so age. Uh, with the update to Fizzbands, uh, the ages have changed somewhat. Um, in my personal opinion, it always seemed more of a suggestion than a hard and fast rule. I mean, this is a world of magic where just about anything is possible. Um, so age never really seemed like uh, such a huge thing, but now they've gone and codified it by saying that most PCs live around a century or so, uh, as long as they don't get gruesomely murdered, except for some long-lived races such as elves or dwarves. In terms of effects, I don't think it really has much, uh, except in terms of role-playing flavor, right? So let's say you're a younger creature, um, it might be more naive, whereas an older one may be more jaded and pessimistic, whatever, or, loving and caring uh and it can also help explain why your character may or may not know something not covered under the stat block necessarily yeah it's also interesting to me that most of the creatures don't actually have age listed in the monster manual right you'll get it for specific npcs and you'll get the difference between a juvenile and an adult on some creatures but for the most part they don't even mention it you got to go digging into the you know the playable races and shit right to find out what the average lifespan of a kobold is um it's just not listed in the monster manual where they listed kobolds for the first time so if you want an elderly kobold you had to look elsewhere to try to figure it out which was kind of kind of pain in the ass um especially if you want to run social encounters or more dynamic and complex combat encounters too where you've got elders and soldiers and younglings and shit like that you know yeah I mean, some things I can kind of understand, like let's say a mimic, right? Oh, first yeah. of all, they're not going to calculate their own age, probably, and nobody's going to like keep a mimic in captivity to find out how old it gets. Yeah, it's not like you can just look at it and see the gray fur starting and go, "Oh, okay, it's getting old now." Yeah, yeah. Look, some of them, some of them don't need ages. However, I feel like some some creatures should have an elderly gray owl bear should move differently than a young hyperactive one it's just it would just be interesting to know what the ages are and they used to do that in previous editions too where you would see 
kind of, you know, they hit this age of maturity at about this level. I mean, gnolls are fascinating because they don't have childhoods. They're just bang, crazy gnolls. You're like screaming into existence and off they go. And they never get old, right? They, they die long before that. It's just, that's neat. The life cycle can be a neat thing to add. I'm, I'm disappointed we don't see more of it. So when it's mentioned in a stat block, it's important. It's something that the game designers have thought about for encounter-based reasons. Yeah. All right. I, I, uh, that's what I like about Call of Cthulhu, right? Where uh, depending on your age, you'll lose whatever speed, uh, but you'll gain knowledge as time goes on, right? Like you'll lose certain stats, but you'll gain elsewhere. I also love that you lose your appearance stat. Like you just get uglier, <laughs> empirically uglier <laughs> as you get older. George Clooney does not exist in the Call of Cthulhu world. Yeah. Or Idris Alba or yeah. <laughs> um, Ant-Man, Paul Rudd. Helen Mirren. Yeah. So what you're saying is they're all eldritch horrors. Yes, clearly. That's or the very least elves. Maybe we maybe we just crack the code to the uh, to what Scientology is all so about. This episode doesn't go out and we disappear. They solved us. Uh, it would explain Tom Cruise still doing his own stunts at his age. No, that's just short man syndrome. Speaking of short man syndrome, let's move on to the next. What about episode? Dave. <laughs> a short in a different way um uh, let's, so let's, size there we go yeah yeah uh, in terms of size uh you can find this information just under the name uh right next to the alignment in the monster stat blocks or just under the alignment in the older books player races stat blocks this has changed somewhat with wizards now saying that certain races will give you the ability to to choose either being small or medium or medium or large to represent a more realistic range of what any given race may look like. Um, they also say that now, rather than having an average range for any given race, that player characters will fall under the same average as humans, uh, but that you can choose whatever you'd like to fit in uh, what you're envisioning for your character. To be honest, this seems kind of dumb to me because I don't think a gnome or a halfling should be able to have the same height range as a human uh, outside of magical means. It just kind of ruins the lore behind them and what kind of makes them special. I also envision dwarves and dragonborn as having a higher weight to height ratio, right? Like they just be more compact than humans. Yep. I, I get they're going for greater customize, uh, customization in uh, character creation, but it just seems like kind of an unnecessary change to me. For me, it sounds like they had the issue of people being like, well, these are the rules. We have to stick to them. And everyone forgetting that this is your own personal role-playing game and you can change it as you please. So I feel like they just put that into words again. I, you know, yeah, I think to a degree you're, you're right, James. I just, the more that you let everybody do anything, the less special things become, right? And it just, it, these updates to the playable races, they're starting to drive me a little crazy. One of the really cool things that we got in Acquisitions Incorporated are these little goblin creatures called the Verdant. When you are uh, level one, you're small sized. When you hit level five, you become medium sized. You grow up enough to actually physically grow seemingly overnight, just bang, you're medium sized. 
it's part of the actual like race that you get this weird upgrade in height just out of the blue one day you and evolve it, like a pokemon kind of and i mean can you imagine take pokemon for example can you imagine if they turn around and like hey you know what you can just be whatever level you want to be and have whatever powers you want and by the way there's only three powers and everybody has access to them so which one is your favorite pokemon now right like we're just we're just ruining it for the sake of ruining it and i just i don't know it frustrates me yeah i i think it's more of an inclusion thing like i i think it makes a lot of sense for alignment right but in terms of size some things i think are kind of like hard written into characters yeah yeah and it should look and remember size is not just about your physical body it size also includes your threatened area right the idea of of the average medium creature being a five foot by five foot square it's because that's kind of what i control on a battlefield i control a a five foot diameter with me in the middle right and and that's that's how D runs so that's why you have some things that are like um that have this increased reach because they're moving beyond the immediate area that they control was it halflings have this special ability to be able to move through some spaces that larger creatures are in as well we're getting all of this muddied now because people are fucking around with size but it's really interesting to sit down and look at how big is this creature especially because when you get gargantuan and tiny there's no caps on either of those a gargantuan creature can be anything from a two-story building to a mountain and it doesn't really give you any details about that how big is the tarasque really because i've seen pictures of it peeking around a three-story building and i've seen pictures of it like knocking a mountain aside i think it depends how badly your players fucked up (laughs) (laughs) um how big is a how big is a tiny creature though it's the size of a house cat right well what about a worm why why is a worm still considered tiny so when you sit down and look at what your size is it's really worth thinking about what is the threatened range for this creature and what is uh what is going to impress the players the most when you reveal this creature whether they're small and hiding in the dark or you know nimble and and peeking around a, a chair leg or they're just they're blotting out the sun because they're so damn massive right think about about size and because a lot of people just see medium and go oh there we go he's roughly five foot eight and and there you go they don't put any more thought into it but then there's bugbears and dwarves are both medium size there should be a fucking difference i think you get into a tough area though if you have that much distinction right that's that's a lot to follow because i mean there's already enough rules behind this game that it can sometimes be a lot to pay attention to so i think it's it's simplicity that they're going for yeah these things but simplicity just means broad at this point it doesn't mean simple if it was simple there'd only be four different races to play right what they're doing is they're trying to add more and more and more complexity and choice and customizability but it's just it's just hammering down the peaks and filling in the valleys and it's going to make the whole thing more boring honestly yeah. the, uh, here we are arguing about game design and and shit again but uh i don't think that it is unreasonable to say hey you know what sure knolls are medium sized but they're all freaking eight feet tall when mm-hmm. a knoll enters the cabin hunting the villagers and sniffing the air that needs to be damn scary still medium yeah. but this helps the dm paint the picture more right 
And that's why size is so important um, because it helps you describe. And sure, you can have a five foot human or a six foot five human, right? Like we've, there's variant to all of this. You can have a really tall goblin or a really short dragonborn. Of course you can, but give us kind of the average range so that we know how short is a really short dragonborn? Yeah, I, I can see that. I agree, but one thing I think is, especially with being able to choose your size class, if you're choosing a size class that isn't your creature's native, like medium for um, humans, that you get a negative effect. Because someone I, who's eight feet tall as a human has negative health effects. Someone who's two feet tall as a human has negative health effects. So yep. if you're going to switch your class because you want to be eight feet tall, cool, you do you, but it well, should come for free. Right, but I'm talking specifically about NPCs and monsters. These are DM tools, right? If I, if I want to be imposing... Even for using as other creatures, though, a six-foot-tall goblin, there's something wrong with that in one sense or another, right? Yeah, but... but and you And so the point is, as a DM, you've done this on purpose. But if there's no boundaries... For the, there's no context for the players. If they've never heard of a goblin before, and like, yeah, six foot goblin walks in, they go, okay, right? And they don't record, they don't recognize that anything's wrong with this. There needs to be boundaries because boundaries give context. And when yeah. we have context, that breeds creativity. Well, I think if you're going for a six foot goblin, you should just be a hobgoblin at that point. Well, hobgoblins and goblins are very different, though, right? Yeah. Okay. No, that's a good point. But going back to the size thing, I think like when you're talking about, you know, um, a five foot medium creature versus an eight foot medium creature, some of those differences can be rectified in reach, right? So let's say a five foot creature only has a five foot reach, but an eight foot one has a 10 foot reach. Well, remember, reach is is what you can attack. It's not necessarily the area around you that you control, right? So, um, so reach often depends on the weapon that you're using or for like a roper for example how far their tentacles can spread out but they don't mm -hmm. necessarily like immediately control with a bite attack what's what's immediately around them um think about it like if you're holding a spear you can attack someone 10 feet away but you're not picking up the cup 10 feet away you still have to yeah, okay. move your sphere of influence over to it um and so and you're right five foot and eight feet is different but i that's more for role playing than for combat right or for exploration like the dwarf wants to reach the thing at the top of the there's a key above the door frame the dwarf and the halfling are not going to figure that shit out but your dragonborn should be able to be oh hey there it is right it's that eye level for them so that and that there is not game breaking but it's something that i as a dungeon master add to all of my games because it adds a little bit more nuance a little bit more flavor um and it's not just not just player heights it's also creatures um, I like to indicate which one is the scarier beast on the on the field. There are three manticores here. That one is bigger and has a brighter mane. It's beefier just by describing the size. And it's still a large creature. They're all large creatures. But now that one there stands out because it's slightly more threatening, right? And it's just, I don't know. I, I feel like we don't give enough um, enough weight to size so again when they do mention it in a stat block when it's in the lore or um you get some sort of indication in the art about how big something is because every once in a while you'll see like the purple worm crashing up out of the ground and then they'll put a human running away it's very small in context in the foreground to give you the impression of how big this thing is because again gargantuan can mean fucking anything right so they give you this context when you get context 
it is an important factor in the game design for this creature. So what does that add? Either plus or or minus. Because you're right, sometimes being too big is a bad thing, right? And being too small is a bad thing. Yeah, all right. James, take us away on the next bit. <laughs> so creature types, there's aberrations, things that aren't native of this plane, like beholders and other such creatures. Beasts, which we all know every fantasy world's got some. Celestials, beings that are usually tied in service to some kind of deity from the upper planes. Constructs who are made and not born. Dragons, we all know dragons. We've covered them many times on this series. There's also elementals, creatures from the elemental planes. Fae, creatures that are uh, bound closely to nature. So there's fiends. These are denizens of the lower planes and they're wicked by nature. Giant human-like creatures that are massive. Some have multiple heads, others have deformities. Humanoids, as we all know and appreciate, I guess. There's monstrosities, creatures that are not natural. Things like owl bears, spearmints gone awry. Oozes, jello with attitude. Plants, creatures that are made of plant that attack. And the undead. So with the updates that have been brought forward, many creatures used to be classified as humanoid, and that's actually going to be changing. So things will now be classified as monstrosities, fey, and other. So that we'll run into issues with certain spells that control humanoid creatures. That's going to be our biggest issues with the changes going forward. I think this also greatly affects some of the subclasses as well, right? That will have class features that are specifically meant to focus on humanoids. And I don't just mean like like the ranger's favorite enemy. I'm talking about, I think the Oath of Ancients Paladin has got shit directly tied to, to humanoids specifically. And now you might not be able to buff some of the other people in your party. And that's that's going to change whether or not you choose these subclasses. Yeah, I, I think it also will greatly affect certain spells like uh, Dominate Beast and uh, Charm Monster kind of things. Oh yeah, the entire enchantment school is going to be affected by this yeah i feel like they're going to update that as well to go along with this because you'd be losing too much utility is with those any of those spells at this point because isn't charm person against any humanoid and that was quite broad and now you are basically locked to a person it's interesting that they're they're going broad in some parts of this redesign and then getting like weirdly granule in others yeah, I think it's one of those things that's going to be a time will tell. Yeah, I agree with that. I kind of feel like this is a step for the next edition. They're kind of putting it in place to see how people react to a more finite and like minutely quantified list of creatures and all of that. Yeah. I feel like a lot of these changes we're seeing are going to be for 6th edition or 5.5, depending yeah, or what people are calling 5.5 with this new update that's coming out. Yeah. Okay, and then another thing we're going to talk about here is the tags, which were elf, goblinoid, titan, or the like. These important details generally weren't identified always in the stat block. Going forward, there'll be much more, there'll be a tag section for it. Yeah, they're going to be introducing new tags, and they'll also be adding named class tags to certain creatures, such as Cleric, Druid, Wizard. And with that, these creatures uh, will be on the same level for alignment to magic items as named creatures. Mm. 
so we can expect to see a lot of that moving forward where again they're they're because we're no longer going to get these broad strokes for alignments we're going to get very specific about um factions almost right so not all drow are evil these factions are and you can expect this from this kind of faction and i guess this is kind of where they're starting to split hairs and give us a little bit more um uh more specificity but they're also covering their own asses i think with a lot of this this to me feels like the answer to the question i've always had with these types of games whether online computer or on tabletop that when your party dies in a dungeon with their high-powered magic equipment why is it just sitting there these semi-intelligent creatures that killed you just saw that sword shot flame it's gonna pick it up and use it whether it can use the flame that's a different story, but eventually it should learn those magics. To me, that's the answer to that. Yeah. I also think it's kind of a role play thing, right? Like they, um, so that the DM kind of knows uh, what the character's motivations are, right? Like if it's, uh, if it has a cleric thing, it knows that it's kind of a godly character or it's, it's more devout or um, religious and probably has access to magic. Yeah. And it has certain wants and motivations kind of thing. I just hope that if they're going to introduce these tags, they don't just drop them in the back of a bestiary section in a module. They give us a proper another monster manual of sorts and say, hey, look, here's a section explaining these tags and what you can expect from them. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah. Because one of the tags that we have is, is called Titan. And Titan confused me in 5th edition at first before I realized that the only thing that Titan means is that this creature was designed and created like you would create a, a construct designed and created by gods. So things like Krakens and Empyreans and whatnot are Titans and they're, the, they're essentially demigods. That's an amazing level of detail. I don't think most people know because it's it's buried at the beginning of, of one of the books. Um, and that's a lot of fun to play with, the, the idea of these demigods. This is where, look, <laughs> if you have a demigod, this should be where warlock patrons come from, right? The idea that warlock patrons can be, I don't know, one of these things, less than a god, more than a mortal, figure it out. It's just, it doesn't sit right with me. I wish there was some sort of, um, again, boundaries give context, context breeds creativity. Right. So I just, I'm excited to see these new tags to see what's going to happen with them. I'm hoping that this is going to be kind of like shorthand for a DM to glance at a stat block and figure it out. There was also updates to the alignment system. It was removed in Candlekeep and Ravenloft, Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft. And then it was returned in Beyond the Witchlight, the Wild Beyond the Witchlight. And it's going to be appearing in all of their other upcoming books. It was removed in the first place because the community was having confusion about how alignment worked, I guess. That is a politically correct way of saying that people were pissed off at the racist undertones. Yeah. And specifically, it was drow and orcs, right? But then from there, people started to extrapolate and, and put those, those issues onto just about everybody. So wizards pulled it all back very briefly i expect that there will be future reprints that will include alignment for Candlekeep and van richten's guide to ravenloft um but yeah you you may have ones that don't have alignment in there and you're kind of left to your own devices to figure that shit out yeah i mean 
I kind of like that they added the wording, you know, typically and stuff. So people know that they can play around with it a little bit more. It but says I, it at the beginning of every Wizards of the Coast book that these are just guidelines, not rules. Yeah. It was already there. People just decided to get butthurt. We need to be upset about something, right? Yeah. Like they could have solved this whole issue by changing instead of the drow race to the drow species. They and separate so them from each other. You're no longer a race. You are an individual species. And because the rules say these are guidelines, not everyone is bad. Just like not everyone is five feet. There's variance. Yeah. Look, I, I look, I always bust it down to a I put it in a different genre. Okay. If it was aliens, so the big the big complaint here is that all uh, orcs were considered savage and they had um, we can't give them all strength and constitution because what about skinny ones and so on and so forth I'm like look if it was aliens if you were to take an alien species in a different game and you call it a species and you have an alien species that naturally gets a plus two to dexterity because that's built into into the fact that they've got four arms no one would be bitching and complaining about this but because nope. they use the word race and because everybody's vaguely humanoid and we have multicultural societies now in fifth edition remember back when the game was originally designed humans were there elves are over there dwarves are removed and they're over there orcs are on the fringes like there was not a whole lot of blending right and so now that we very much have that in you know, water deep and Baldur's gate and um like uh, the communities are more multicultural now people are sitting there saying hey you know what? let's not focus on the differences between the characters let's focus on the similarities and i'm like fantasy races it's fantasy species let's like yeah. i agree with kyle i like that it says typically because i think a lot of it is cultural mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. um but the orcs were created by groomsh in groomsh's image they're just constructs i mean they have free will and technically souls based on the lore but they're constructs you, if you go against groomsh you are allowed to but you'll pay for it in the afterlife and every orc knows this so if groomsh is making every orc specifically yeah they may have natural abilities and tendencies that doesn't seem off the mark for me yeah i think a lot of people were seeing real life parallels that weren't necessarily there I, I will say the drow shit was a little was a little problematic. I think the drow was a little on the nose. That was a little much, but I it, think honestly, if they were to just give a slightly purple tinge to the artwork, to the skin color of the artwork, and yeah, again, again, they were punished into the into the uh, underdark because they followed Loth. There's a reason that they're evil, and it's because they were evil, and they have an evil goddess that is running their evil society. It makes sense that they're evil. It was like Jinx from Pokemon, as you're saying, give them a color tint. Like the original Jinx was blackface, and then it got changed to purple because people were offended. This is a made-up pixelated creature that you got upset about. This is a made-up fantasy race you got upset about. But that's beside the fact we're getting away from the point again. <laughs> we're just ripping on wizards in this episode, eh? Yeah. Hmm. all right well moving forward we'll try to be better about it like wizards does a lot of things right but we we are we are addressing the changes and and our opinions about them in this episode so yeah. well uh, one of my favorite things about this game and the worlds in general is uh, like redemption arcs like those are really some of the most fun storylines right where you take something 
of an evil race or a character out of an evil race or species and make them better than they were, right? Because isn't that what this... I mean, that's what Drizzt is all about, right? He's the drow with a heart of gold? Yeah. He saw the evil in the society and moved away from it. And hey, you know Either way. Look, that's that's cliche. It is a trope. It's stereotypical. But it resonates throughout history as being one of the most popular storytelling mechanics because everybody can identify with it. And I don't have a problem with a redemption arc. I also love a redemption arc that doesn't pay off. They almost get there and then they fail. See Golem, for example, right? Okay. So I'm all about the, yeah, evil society and then you learn to be good. And we get that all the time, right? You know something else we get all the time is we get, oh, this dwarf is an evil merchant that is trying to, to screw your party over. But nobody sits there and says, hey, this Duragar is actually a really nice blacksmith that's going to break you a deal, <laughs> right? Like, why does it only ever go one way? One of my current favorite, I'm reading a story now where the main character is essentially become an evil god and is going to wipe out half of the human population on this planet but to right. save all of the planet. If the humans survive, everyone dies. If half them die, everyone lives. So the whole story, they're working against them to stop them because the humans want the human. But it's the reverse, essentially, of the redemption arc, that I'm going to do terrible things for a good reason. Hmm. Hey, you know what? Look, alignment is... Alignment should not be something that a player relies on except the first two or three sessions to help guide them as they discover their character, right? And then from there, it shouldn't really affect how a a character runs, but it's a really useful tool for shorthand for a DM to glance there and say, hey, I need some sort of foaming at the mouth army of total barbarian level. What kind of races do I have that can do that? Uh, What kind of creatures do I have that can do that? And then they go and they look, they find, there we go. I got my chaotic evil check it out. It's demons. Okay. I don't want to use demons. It's gnolls. No, still too uh, demonic. It's orcs. Okay. There we go. I got orcs now. That's a great tool to have. It's also a great tool to have because again, you get to subvert the stereotype, right? And I love, I love that they're changing it to typically this, but they're not doing that for NPCs. NPCs will still have a definitive alignment because that like the named NPCs, the actual yeah. adventure uh, NPCs. Yeah, the way I feel about that, it's the difference between the individual and a group. Exactly. So if you're in a group of people and every single one of them wants to get out the guillotine, you're not going to say no because you don't want to be put in the guillotine. But if you're alone and have to make that choice, that's going to be a different choice. It's mob mentality, essentially, is the way I think of it. Yeah, and honestly, I think you're absolutely right. They should just have a blurb that says, with the exception of angels and demons and uh, aberrations, I guess devils, so fiends, celestials and fiends and aberrations, there's nothing that is inherently, I guess constructs too are inherently neutral, aren't they? But, you know, there's there's no race that is inherently good or evil, except for these ones that are literally created to be that way right yeah. by intelligent design um and it's, again this gives us a, a funky place in the D world because the gods are proven entities that do exist if it is an evil god who does evil things and who spits in the face of morality and then creates this group of creatures to do evil things i don't think you're off the mark by saying hey those guys are evil <laughs> right like it seems a little straightforward to me but I mean, they, you're, I think they should have a, a blurb at the beginning that says, hey, not every goblin is evil. The mm. cultures of goblins f- 
follow evil gods and do evil things. Each specific goblin has free will and can make their own choices, but feel cultural pressure. Yeah. Not every drow follows Lolth, but the majority of them do. Yeah, if you're in a drow city, you better assume they follow Lolth. Yeah. Otherwise. Yeah, and that's just... I'm sorry, isn't that common sense? I, like, I've been DMing for so long with alignment sitting there already. I've subverted tropes. I've gone complicated with with gray area. I ran an entire gray area campaign for the last campaign, which was just soul crushing in a thousand different ways. But there was no like good or evil. I have fucked with alignment. I love playing with alignment. It's I hated the idea that we were getting rid of it. I love that we're getting this idea of typically because it's going to encourage people to other people to play with it in different ways. Mm-hmm. We're no longer beholden to the nine or to the nine square grid. I think it might be partially um, for new players, right? So that they, because you're coming from somewhere with experience with the game, James, you too, right? Where you know that you can play with it a lot, whereas people coming into the game fresh might feel beholden to exactly what is written there. I agree with you there. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Let's like a lot of the updates were for that exact reason. I'm not sure how many new players they're still getting. It seems to me. Then again, I mean, the online community, the online community is only going to be the the established players, and they're also no, going to be the last. Not players. at all. With the pandemic, so many more people are playing games. I've had four people that I know personally start playing. I'm waiting to set up a game with another friend that's been excited to play for a long time, but well, never got a chance. Well, then he's growing massively, in my opinion. In, if that if that is the case, I'm 100% for this additional stuff. But I mean, I don't like the idea that they're reacting to the angry, crotchety old fans that have been there for 30 years that are going to buy the books or bitch repeatedly one way or the other. I hope that they are accommodating the new fans. And I hope that there are a lot of them. And I hope they all listen to this podcast. And I hope they all donate money. Anyway, <laughs> so, <laughs> anyway, let's uh, let's move on because we have waxed poetic about this level of game design. Let's get into the crunchy numbers a little bit. Um, also above the stat block, the strength decks and whatnot, um, we have three pieces of information that are relatively important as well for you to understand kind of when to use a creature. The first one is AC, your armor class. The basic math for armor class is going to break down to be, um, is going to be 10 plus your dexterity. It's the same thing as the um, player uh, AC and the math there. If you get armor because you're playing, it's a hobgoblin um, enemy or an NPC that's wearing, you know, full plate, uh, it'll include it. Sometimes they have special uh, dexterity bonuses or they have natural armor to it as well. There's usually a note in the brackets, but you should be able to reverse engineer what the AC is for a creature. Once you learn how to do that, look, it's not always the case. There are some high-level monsters that just have an AC of, of 26 because they goddamn deserved it. And that's it. That is the only reason why that, that is um, the game design got thrown out the window because, of course... This arch devil has an AC of 26. Yeah, he's wearing like leather, but the leather is made from the skins of angels. And sure, you know what? Fine. For flavor reasons, it's leather armor, but in reality, you're not going to be able to hit this guy. So, but when you look through the monster manual, for the most part, you should be able to reverse engineer the AC. Once you're able to do that, you're going to be able to then engineer ACs moving forward for homebrew monsters. Whenever somebody says, oh, hey, I I homebrewed a new monster and they throw the stats at me, I immediately start um, reverse engineering it to see 
if it stacks up and how it lines up and does it make sense. Um, the game itself at face value is not broken. Mechanically, it's not. It it works. It's very simple and it works. I don't think people should fuck with it too much. Um, and AC and uh, HP hit points are two really clear ways to uh, to see whether or not someone is doing their homework or just deciding arbitrarily they should have an AC of 19 because I don't want people to hit them. No, there's a proper way to do this. And uh, and every once in a while, even the game designers realize that, hey, you know what, we have to uh, we have to fudge the numbers a little bit. We'll fudge the math. So natural armor, right? But then that becomes a defining feature of the of the creature as well, and something that's worth describing in the uh, in your introduction when they step onto the battlefield, right? When you're the dungeon master, it's worth mentioning the thick hide of the creature or the gleaming breastplate of the warrior that just stepped forward. When it comes to hit points, it's a little bit more difficult to describe how many hit points a creature has. Um, I always loved playing video games where you had a little health bar above the enemies and you could watch it go from green to yellow to red as they slowly start to die. Uh, you don't really have that in D&D. Um, again, the hit points that they give you are the average, and then they give you kind of the uh, the breakdown of, oh, it's 3d8 plus 10 or whatever. The way that they break it down is that um, is you look at the, for example, 3d8, that's three means that it is probably a CR3. This thing has been leveled up three times. The D8 is the base hit points. It's just like character creation. And then that that plus 10 or whatever is going to be how you break down the uh, constitution modifier because they're literally rolling for hit points on this. You can do that. Um, I tend to go with maximum hit points where I calculate what the max is and then give them to my players. But that's because I run high magic item um, campaigns. So if the players get bonuses, the monsters just get to last longer. But you should be able to reverse engineer hit points. I know that there have been some outliers um, in recent books where the hit point calculations don't line up. And I can't figure out why. It's almost like it's weird little oversights. Um, but when you see a whole pile of hit points, one of the things that you should look at is what their uh, challenge rating is and how many hit points and what their AC are. This is going to tell you how long, how many rounds they should get in battle. You should be able to ballpark it because if they have 10 hit points, but they're a CR six, you know that they're a one and done kind of creature. They'll get in for one round and they're slaughtered or they're supposed to move in a mob so that they can last longer. They can't all be targeted at once. If they've got a ton of hit points or a very high AC, it, then the, clearly they should stick around a little bit longer. And the reason for this game design is because they're going to have cool shit to do in their action section. And you want to be able to either recharge abilities or uh, get off crazy multi-attacks or do bizarre movement things and like possess somebody with your possessability or um, you you manage to get off your fear effect a couple of times with in the combat. This is a really, really useful tool um, to be able to tell you how many rounds they should be lasting. If you're lasting too long or not long enough, your encounters are not balanced. And if you find that all of your creatures are dying too quickly before they can get their shit off, your players are too powerful. I'm not saying neuter the players from that point or the characters. You go ahead and neuter your players. You do what you want. I am saying that you should uh, you should start thinking about maybe designing at a higher CR level for them in the future. When it comes to speed, this is the other thing that we get. We have a different kind of uh, movement type. The, the average creature moves at uh, 30 to 40 uh, feet per round, right? There are a number of different speed types. There are six of them. They all mean different things. I'm just going to go through it really, really quickly. 
Burrow is pretty straightforward. You go underground. You probably cannot be targeted by spells. Um, be very specific about whether or not you can be seen when you're burrowing. And you're probably burrowing at a slow rate unless you're one of the really cool, bizarre creatures that can burrow at high speeds. Uh, climb is straightforward. This is you not having to make a climb check to move up a vertical surface. Um, but think as well about the texture of the surface. Uh, not all vertical surfaces are created equally. I can climb a tree and I can do that slowly. I cannot climb a 20 foot mirror. I just cannot stick to it. I have no handholds that I can't, I can't do it. Um, so think about your difficult terrain, um, even on vertical surfaces, just because you have a climb speed doesn't mean you are immune to shiny polished surfaces. Uh, fly is straightforward. Hover is interesting because hover tends to mean, as I understand it, hover tends to mean that you can float above the ground. If you are unconscious, you do not fall and take damage. If you are flying, you have a hover speed and you get knocked to zero hit points, you land and are unconscious. I believe that's the difference between hover and flying. It's a pain in the ass to, to deal with that. Um, but hover is one of those things that is largely ignored until it suddenly freaking matters. Um, I also like to flavor it so that if you have a fly speed, but it doesn't say hover, that you don't stop and just flap your wings where you are. You have to be in consistent movement throughout the round, even if it's only five foot square back and forth. You've got to be flapping and moving about. Um, you get a swim speed, which we've covered at length in the aquatic encounters episode. And then, of course, your walk speed. And your walk speed will dictate whether or not you can dash, or rather how far you can dash. Um, and uh, and there's also a different sprinting rules and whatnot based on your walk. The walk is the basic one. If they don't tell you if it's burrow, climb, fly, hover, or swim, then, of course, it's just your walking speed. Um, depending on how quickly you are moving, that is going to... In my opinion, that should really dictate how big your battle map should be and how many things you should have to hide behind, what cover there might be that's uh, available. Speed and environment will drastically change your encounter design. Have you guys run into major um, uh, speed-based issues when it comes to combat in the past? Yeah. One yeah. game I was a player in, one of our um, monk players... By the time we got to level, I believe it was 12, he had a standard move speed of 90 feet without his dash, which brought him to 180 feet. And then he could have haste on him to double that to, what, 360 odd feet. And then he had additional ability that he picked up from somewhere that allowed that to be doubled again. So he was able to run around a whole battle map, find everything, and then run back to the party. Jesus. He was essentially sonar. I've had issues where I made this one shot and I created too big of a map and didn't reflect the movement speeds in the monsters that I used. So where I was hoping to kind of overwhelm the party because they were level 15, uh, they instead just got attacked like little bits at a time. So they, they were e like easily able to take out lower CR creatures and just kind of ruin my whole final boss thing. Oh, that's annoying. I remember, yeah. I remember I was in a game, Terry was DMing me actually, and there were a bunch of us that were, it was a giant hundred foot um, courtyard. And uh, we were running across the courtyard to get to the enemies uh, who were firing arrows at us. And I, um, I was running forward, but I was a 
dwarven cleric, I was moving at 25 feet around, everyone else was moving at 30. And because I wanted to cover them with some healing shit, I wasn't dashing, but everybody else was. It took me four rounds to get to combat. It was horrible. The, the encounter was done by the time I got there. And then I wandered around and, and healed people up. And that was the first time that I stopped and went, yeah, you know what? This, this really matters. So when it comes to DMing with speeds and whatnot, Kyle, your cautionary tale there is uh, exactly kind of what I was thinking about. Um, when I, I start to look at tighter corridors, longer bridges and whatnot, and because it's a fantasy setting, I have no problem having a rope bridge that is one kilometer long, um, right? So it forces the the movement to be in a very limited way, but still keeping it really open as well for flyers and whatnot. Um, I love separating a party. Like James is like, oh yeah, the monk was doing that. Dan's fucking gnome rogue was moving 120 feet around everyone else was doing 30. More than once, I would get him ahead of everybody, signal the trap and drop the portcullis behind them. Yeah, Ooh. fuck you, bud. Here you go. <laughs> And like more than once, Dan ended up unconscious and bloody. And remember, in my games, when you fall unconscious, you get a permanent scar, which means by the end of that campaign, Dan was a walking scab. He was unconscious more often than not. You looked like a just it was he was gross. He was gross by the end of it because um, he kept getting into trouble from splitting the party too much. Um, but the, that's one of the things that I think about when it comes to speed is the idea of getting into trouble. I'm a big believer in the fact that most creatures will not fight to the death. They've got to be zealots or they've got to be really territorial or threatened um, in order to fight that far. Most of them will retreat. And if you see a special speed that's listed there, a movement type that's different, as a DM, you should understand that when they retreat, that's how they retreat. If you are fighting an orangutan and you do enough damage to it, it's going to retreat. It's not going to run away. It's going to climb a tree because it has a climb speed. If you are fighting a giant eagle, it will fly away. It's not going to hop away, right? If you're fighting a crocodile, it's going to swim away when it retreats. This is something to think about. The burrow speed, the swim speed, when you fight something and it's time to retreat, they will then move to that environment that they're used to where they have an advantage over the average humanoid walking across a two-dimensional surface. So before we move on, I just want to ask you guys, I'd like to roll initiative here. Um, we each had three things that we wanted to go over uh, briefly in this first section. Uh, Kyle, you had lore, age, and size. James, you had creature types, tags, and alignment. I went over AC, hit points, and speed. All of this is before we even get to our, our crunchy math stats. Guys, grab your dice and roll. I want to know how difficult was it to find the information you're looking for and figure out the details that you're digging into. How hard is it for you to parse the information that is provided to you in these sections? Let's roll. Three, eight. I got a six. Wow, we suck at this. James, how uh, how hard was it for you to come up with uh, the difference between the creature types? Like, Where did you find your information and, and was it difficult to come across? Uh, my, my information was actually super easy to come across. Um, dnd.wizards.com. I used their handy article that has this all laid out really nicely for you. Nice little quick blurbs to give you the basics of what's going on. So for me, it was quite easy. If you don't know where to look online or you don't have access to it, is it difficult to find the shit in the books? Um, this would be because most of this is coming out of new books, especially with alignment. You're going to be comparing the old books, the candlelight books to Beyond the Witchlight. 
So this would be a lot harder to figure out with yeah. just the books. The creature types are listed at the beginning of the monster manual, right? But we're going to get new different tags and stuff moving forward. I'm sure that's not going to... Yeah, how the tags working, you wouldn't be able to figure out without reading Beyond the Witchlight and understanding how the old system worked. Okay. So it, it is... It takes a little bit of research. I'm glad there are online tools to help. It's a quick that. Google, though, thankfully. Yeah. yeah. So as long as your Google Foo is basic, you're good to go. Uh, when it came to me for the AC and the hit points, I mean, they essentially show you the math and you should have built a player character by this point to be un to be able to understand what it is that you're doing here when you're creating or when you're looking at AC or, or average hit points. Um, for speed, though, it takes a little bit more common sense to be able to figure out how speed um, impacts tactics, right? If you're fast, you're probably not beefy, which means you probably want to go from cover to cover, right? If you have the ability to get a special additional dash in, or you have additional movement shit involved. Oh, that's one thing about movement that we didn't really cover. There's one kind of movement that uh, is, it takes an action to do, and that is teleport. Because you have to cast a spell that takes your action, and then you get to move somewhere else. I mean, there's Misty Step and shit as well, but none of, this, none of these spells are... Um, are part of the movement phase in a turn. If you want to beef up how deadly and difficult a uh, campaign is, or you want to really lean into the hit and run, having your uh, creatures able to teleport as a movement, that right there makes it a more difficult encounter. And I do that at tier three and tier four. If they have the ability to teleport, I make it part of their movement phase, and that messes with the players. So yeah. um, the speed stuff is not like, you have to really know what you're doing as a dm um and uh, have a little bit of experience to see how these different speeds will work in different ways um burrow is not really well laid out anywhere um like whether or not you're leaving tunnels behind um if you are half submerged like you get uh cover rules but then when like how far below ground you have to get before they can't hit you right like there's there are some things about burrow that i wish they would uh show us a little bit more um kind of the math behind the scenes but for the rest of it it's all pretty straightforward except for the, think, that hover shit i think terrain really will factor in quite heavily when it comes to burrow right so if you're in an area where it's hard rock like let's say a mountain face i prefer classic rock but okay yeah <laughs> uh like if you're um if you're on a mountain and it's like solid rock right you're gonna leave a tunnel behind whereas if you're in a desert and it's sand it's gonna cave in after you kind of thing so i think you, you really have to factor in terrain around burrow yes i agree with you i uh i just see a lot of burrow stuff for like crabs and things as well like when you're in loose sand or mud or like I just, there needs to be a little bit more guidance, I think, given to Burrow specifically and Hover. I think the other shit is pretty straightforward. Um, Kyle, how hard was it for you to find the information, like age and and how size works and all that? Uh, size is pretty easy. Um, it's covered in quite a few areas throughout the books. Um, yeah. Age is a little bit harder to look up with player races. It's pretty easy. It's listed right uh, around like movement speed and uh, alignment and other stuff like that. Um, when talking about monsters, much harder because they don't really seem to have a lot of ages. Like in the monster manual, I, I think there's very, very few that actually have ages listed. 
Um, yeah, and then, it's only listed when it like matters to what the creature specifically is. Hags has a little throwaway line about their you know old crones, right? And so like you get that, but that's that's it. Like you're not getting anything specific, and they sure as hell aren't giving you that on like a carrion crawler, right? Or assassin vines don't have ages, right? Yeah, and lore obviously pretty easy. It's right there preceding the stat blocks. So, do you think the lore sections are big enough, Kyle? Um, I mean, if you made them much bigger, the books, like on the monster manual would be huge. It would be a tome because it's already close to 400 pages. So for what it is, yeah, because it gives you the basic necessary information. Could it be longer? Absolutely. And I, we've sacrificed details for variety. Yeah, I think so. I think more than that, though, with how D&D is now, and especially with these more new player inclusive rules, more lore wouldn't get people reading it. I think it would keep people away from going to more exotic monsters because they had a page and a half of lore, as opposed to the little paragraph you get. You get a little bit about it, you go from there. If you want more, you can go find more. Yeah, I guess it makes it more consumable for a new or average player. Yeah. DM. Mm-hmm. So I mean, that's a that's a fair comment. I think that we're at the point now in the edition where they can start to do things like we just got a, a dragon book. I think it's time that we can get an aberration book or an undead book. Like yeah, but those would be separate from the mainstay yes. dungeon master guide, monster manual lore. This yeah. is I'm going out of my way to find additional lore. Yeah, yeah. I re- I really do appreciate what they gave us at the beginning of Volos. Like half that book is hey. Here are the big important monsters. Here's what you need to know about them. I'm glad they did that. And they did that relatively early in the edition too. Mm. I mean, I I think that that's what they do with a lot of the supplementary books like Theros. It's giving you monsters that are scenario specific. Yeah. Right. So if, if they did the monster manuals like that, right, where you're talking about certain planes, like let's say they had an Avernus specific monster manual. And um, I, I guess that's what they did with Wild Beyond the Wishlight, right, where it's a face specific yeah. kind of thing, which is good. So you can tailor make your monster manuals for whatever scenario you want. Yeah. Um, James, do you think these updates and the rule changes are necessary? Not all of them. But by and large? By and large, they they make the game more approachable. And if that was their intent by them, okay, I understand. But they should make that a lot more clear that these aren't necessarily new alignment rules. We are just restating that these rules are guidelines. Because that's what the rules, at least the way I read them now, is basically saying you don't have to be a chaotic evil drow or whatever. That creature can be a lawful good one if you want. You're the DM. You're in charge. Yep. So for that, perfectly understandable. But if it was just to make it more wishy-washy, then it seems like just a money grab to have new books. Yeah, look, I agree. I Necessary? In my opinion, no. We've had four editions of the game before this that were, well, four and a half that did just fine. Um, but is it a good update? Yeah. I love, the, I, I'm with Kyle on this. The, when it says typically lawful evil, 
Yeah, I'm in. That's great. Just please don't do that to my devils. Let them be lawful evil. Force devils to be lawful evil and demons to be chaotic evil so that I have context for the blood war, right? Like some changes won't need to happen and shouldn't because it will affect things uh, negatively in the long run. However, I'm, for the most part, I think these are, are good rules that are going to help people have fun. And that's the point of the game, right? Kyle? Yeah, I'm with you, Adam. Uh, do I think they're necessary? No, but I do think they're good. Other than the sizing ones. I think those are kind of dumb. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Other than that, yeah, I like them. And I also feel like the tags are going to gut a lot of spells and abilities. Yeah, I almost feel like we need to have a reprint on like a spell compendium yeah. where um, where we get a little bit more insight in some of these spells. I don't need every spell to be reworked. I just think that there there should be little updates for uh, yeah. humanoids and fae or, uh, or any creature with a language or find another way to say intelligent creature. Or even put a little more oomph behind the spells if you're going to keep them as humanoid. So if the DC is, let's say, a DC 13, jump into a DC 15. If you're only going after humanoids, that's a little more specialized. You should be able to do that a little bit better. I'm 100% on board with you. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a great idea. Yeah, I like that. Um, did you find that uh, the Lauren information above the ability scores, does that impact your preparation at all when you're DMing? Or, like, I mean, every part of it uh, impacts. But do you think it's more important than the crunchy math? It depends on who I'm playing with, I guess. Yeah, if I'm playing team. with a group that cares about lore, cares about the world, then very much so. If I'm playing with a group that is there to kill and there for their power fantasy, then that has nothing to do with anything. Yeah, that just gives me a bit more flavor of if I'm jumping in from the left or right. Yeah, um, I love this stuff. This very much um, impacts my DM style. I know that Dave, for example, for years was DMing without bothering to look at lore. He would grab the stats needed to get the impact that he wanted for the combats that he was presenting, right? And that, that was it. Um, I'm very much not that way. Uh, also, I, I like putting pieces of puzzles together. And um, I like the lore stuff. You were talking about, Kyle, like uh, with the Basilisk where there's half-eaten statues and shit. When I roll a random encounter for my guys, the random encounter is you come across a half-eaten statue. This could be a combat one if you guys are dumb. If you're like, hey guys, look what I found. Yeah, the basilisk hears you. You're in trouble, right? But um, but if you tiptoe away, and go, oh god, everybody back up. We're gonna find a different way. Then you avoided a combat. Good for you. That was an encounter. You made choice. You had agency. That's the exploration pillar. Um, so I love the shit that's in the lore section. Um, but I, right? I mean, Kyle, I think you're the only person on the podcast that I have not DM'd for. Well, um, you should use that. <laughs> Yeah, sure. Let me just add a fourth game to my fucking week. Um, uh, but uh, my my play style is very much um, based on the agency of the players and what they want to do. And so I like to provide context, um, as much information as possible, to watch them make as many mistakes as they're going to make. Um, and I, I think that it works for the chaotic players like James and Dave, who are just like, yep, I'm here to play D&D, forge ahead, kick that door open, blow shit up. Let's do this. That's why I showed up with dice in my bag. Um, but I also think that it appeals to people like uh, like Charlie and uh, and Mieka and Terry who are like, I don't want to die. I'm going I'm going back to the tavern. No, fuck that. Right. And so have I died yet? <laughs> no. <laughs> Challenge accepted. <laughs> you almost got me once, yeah. but it was for someone else. But you had to jump me instead. 
Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, I love the lore. I think that that's what gives us the flavor and stuff. And I love the weird little nitty gritty bits and pieces that teach me what the difference between a goblin and a kobold is because at face value, they're very similar by the, by the numbers. Kyle, do you? Uh, yeah, it makes a it makes a huge difference to me. I definitely like to research the monsters that I'm putting in, make sure that they fit with all the other pieces that are going into it. Um, it also helps me as a DM get more into the story, right? And it helps. It makes me feel like I am giving my players more. Yeah. And also, it's just more fun for me, and I'm I love that shit. So. Well, well, you and I are, are alike in that, Kyle. We're lore nerds. Oh, yeah. It's that time again for us to reach out to this wonderful community that we have and remind everybody that there's a mailbag coming up. It's coming up relatively quickly. You can jump over onto our subreddit, r slash itsamimic, and drop a question in there. You can hit us in our DMs on any one of our social media accounts, or you can go hit us up at info at itsamimic.com. I do also scroll through the YouTube comments as they come in, but that place is just a minefield of hatred and vitriol. So um, if you put it in there, I will curse you forever for making me dig through that shit. Anyway. Please send us the questions that you have to ask. I hope they're D&D related, although God knows we made a promise like three years ago that we would always answer whatever question that you bring to the table. So reach out and let us know. And hopefully we're going to hear from some new voices because I know you guys have questions, have thoughts, have ideas. You all have your own campaigns that you're excited about on a regular basis. No question is too mundane or stupid. We, In the first episode we discussed favorite sex positions like it was just <sighs> there's a low bar here and you won't be below it let's put it that way so please reach out and hit us up with by the love of god DD questions i'm begging you and hopefully we will roll in those random tables and pull your question out of the long list if not of course it gets recycled into the future episodes i think we only have a single question left over from the very very first episode or mailbag episode that we ever did um so of the first 60 there's one left hopefully we'll get to it this time around and hopefully we'll get to yours as well so please reach out and let us know whatever kind of burning questions that you have for us about it's a mimic or podcasting uh dnd fifth ed call of cthulhu or anything about Kyle's personal life or James's dating habits. Anything is really good for us to talk about. So uh, if we don't have the answer, I promise you I'll make up something offensive. Okay, so now let's dig into the stats and uh, the section, um, like the really crunchy bit where the, where the math and the, the encounter details are going to be. Not necessarily the actions, but the encounter details. Um, so obviously let's go through the ability scores. Um, first and foremost, let, well, I'll cover strength, dex, con, intelligence, wisdom, and charisma. Um, but before we jump into that, obviously everybody knows that they're changing how ability score increases work for players, um, which means that you don't just automatically get the plus two to dex, plus one to charisma if you choose you know, this specific kind of race. They're letting you choose two of one and one of another, or plus one to any three ability scores um, when you do your character creation. This allows us to have, uh, see, I had a long actual fight with Dan about this. Um, we were in a car for about an hour and we were 
yelling at each other earlier this week, uh, actually, about this. I don't like the idea that Dragonborn are not automatically strong. They should be fucking automatically strong. That's just how it is. Orcs should be automatically stronger. Even if you have a weak orc, it will be stronger than a weak human, right? And so it gets those natural increases. That isn't necessarily the case anymore. You can have your racial bonuses, because that's still what they're freaking called, you're going to get these these ability score increases now based on personal history instead of the race, um, which drives me nuts. I wish they wouldn't do that. I think that you should have a plus one from a racial thing and then plus one, plus one or plus two from your background. We have other places or you choose a class. So, you know, you're going to be a wizard. Yeah, you get a boost to intelligence. Hard stop. There you go. Move on. Why are we worried about whether or not dwarves may or may not get a constitution bonus give them the constitution bonus they're fucking dwarves they get that it's it's more than the average human would get so anyways i'm certain i'm starting to get angry about it again it rolls back to that whole species thing we were talking about exactly right and the idea of just the natural gifts that people have <laughs> I, I look at it I, I i look at it this way these creatures were either created and therefore they have a specific reason to be the way that they are or they evolved to be this way, and these are the the traits that they uh, had to use to get this far, right? Um, evolution is uh, not just survival of the fittest. It, it, I mean, it is, but it's more about the most successful traits will continue to be propagated through it until it becomes an inherent trait yeah, of the species. Yeah. It's the idea that you won't be surprised to see your cat on top of a counter, on top of a dresser, but you would be surprised if your dog was up there. Exactly. The cat's right? got a better dex to make the jump. It's not a surprise. Your dog did it? Okay, they've done something special for their species. Exactly. And so this is, a, a, we're not going to really try to focus on the on the player side of it. I'm going to try to focus on the monster side. Um, but they are changing the way that ability scores are being um, handed out now at the at character creation. Uh, it... It should still be reflective, in my opinion, of what the average monster is in the in the monster stat, right? Your kobolds are naturally weak by a monster stat. Therefore, the player character should be naturally weak. And that's just like, I'm sorry, that's how I land on it. it the playable character should be a reflection of the species and culture that that uh, the monster, um, if, there's a, if there's a monster stat for it, that they should be uh, congruent. Anyway, let's get into it. Um, so strength is clearly, probably, in my opinion, the most easiest uh, to understand. Strength is essentially your muscles. You could rename this as muscle stat. Uh, it's going to impact how hard you hit with most physical attacks. Um, but it's also um, your push, pull, drag, lift, carry. It's weird that jump comes from the strength score um, because I think about things like um, like high jump and long jump. And there's like a certain amount of, of life uh, agility that has to go with it. But I guess it is still muscular based. Um, but if it's if it's got to be a straining your muscles to complete a check, like forcing a door open or lifting a heavy boulder or um, caught in a tug of war, you're dealing with strength. Um, strength is also going to be used for things like ramming um, and pushing people over and a lot of the combat maneuvers as well. Um, when it comes to dexterity, though, dexterity, a lot of people say, is just agility. And that while that is a part of it, uh, it's also specificity um, and uh, and reaction time as well. 
because it directly impacts your initiative. So how well you react to things. Um, and it also impacts your sleight of hand. When we're talking about dexterity, it's not just how um, flexible you are, although a lot of people like to think of it that way. It all, it's also about how light on your feet you are, how specific you are with your um, fine motor skills. Um, and when you see high dexterity on a monster, chances are good that they have, at least for the first three tiers, they've given up a little bit of strength to have high dexterity. That's a generalization, but that tends to be the rule. That dexterity means that they're probably moving faster. They're probably hitting um, a little bit uh, more precise, and they probably don't have a whole lot of uh, hit points because their AC is higher. That's the other thing. Dexterity is about, for lack of a better word, dodging, right? It impacts your AC. The higher your dexterity is, um, the more you're able to get out of the way of attacks. Now, your hit points are directly tied to your constitution. Clearly, constitution is one of those kind of funky ones that has about a dozen little minor rules attached to it, but tends to not come into your daily uh, play in every session. It does affect your hit points, but you do that between sessions. You do the calculation then, right? Or it affects your maximum hit points anyway. But unless you're up against poisons or endurance and stamina tests, or you're trying to concentrate on spells, constitution doesn't really come into play that often. You can expect to, when you see a high constitution score in a stat block, you can expect that this uh, creature is going to be able to have, A, a shit ton of hit points, and that's why they have the high constitution. Sometimes you will also see that they are resistant to a certain kind of damage, and that's reflected by constitution being high as well. That tends to be hand-in-hand in, hand in uh, the game design, although it doesn't necessarily need to be, but it tends to be how the wizard's designers um, look at it. Constitution should be about shrugging off poisons, should be how good your stamina is, whether holding breath or going for long marches, uh, moving above your regular speed for long periods of time. Uh, but it's also things like, uh, like concentrating on spells. Constitution is low-key one of the more important um, stats to focus on, especially if you have a dungeon master that has a lot of experience and is going to attack your character sheet in different ways beyond just hit points. Um, when you start to deal with things like exhaustion, constitution becomes far more important. Uh, then we get to the mental stats. Intelligence is not just how smart you are. In um, fifth edition, it also covers your education level as well as your ability to remember things. Now, that's not stated anywhere, but every once in a while you'll get something about um, having to do a check about a thing that you read way back when, when you studied this, or uh, can you recall a piece of information, or uh, modify memory is a spell that deals with memory. Intelligence is inherently tied to memory as well, and this is something that I think a lot of DMs forget. Um, intelligence checks are really, really useful for that kind of uh, that kind of recollection. Hey, do I do I know the name of this specific dragon? Because I studied dragons back in, in my my days at the Bardic College. You sit and go, man, roll an intelligence check. Let's see if you can remember the details of this. And then most intelligence checks usually come with a sliding scale uh, for success and failure as well, which is a lot of fun. Wisdom is not just how wise you are. A lot of the times wisdom decisions can be boiled up into intelligence checks as well. Should I open that door that is spouting flames from underneath it? Yeah, that's technically wisdom in our world. It probably falls under intelligence in a D&D setting because wisdom is more about willpower, connection to divinity, 
and your awareness of the uh, surroundings. All of our perception and whatnot uh, is based on wisdom. All of our ability to um, to uh, cast divine spells is. I'm, I'm specifically thinking of clerics and uh, and druids on this and uh, rangers. I guess paladins are the outlier here, um, but it's it's wisdom based. If you're connected to nature, if you know what's going on uh, in another part of the building just by kind of sensing the dull thumps or the loud roar or whatever it is, you these are all wisdom based things that we don't think of as true wisdom. This one is it's so poorly named um, in fifth edition. Clearly, I always sorry thought of wisdom versus intelligence as book smarts versus street smarts but right? even, even street smarts i mean you when you look at a rogue intelligence is an important skill for rogues to have and rogues are your criminal masterminds they're the street smarts as well and when it comes to well how well are you um choosing your mark to pull a con on as well when it comes to street smarts that's charisma right wisdom used to be that but it isn't anymore in fifth edition it was like that in 3.5 i like the tomato analogy no strength is crushing a tomato dexterity is throwing a tomato constitution's eating a bad tomato intelligence is knowing a tomato is a fruit wisdom's knowing not to put it in a salad charisma is selling someone that fruit salad <laughs> I, I like that but again yeah. it, doesn't, it doesn't quite fit fifth edition wisdom knowing that it doesn't go into a salad in fifth edition that's an intelligence role should this go here is an intelligence role wisdom the way that it's it's treated by the game designers when they're building monsters wisdom is based around perception and instinct it's not based around um tactics it's not based around strategy it's not based around um morality or instincts and it, it it honestly should be but it isn't and that's why i say that it's, it's got this weird misnomer to it this should really be called awareness whether it's awareness of the divine or awareness of your environmental surroundings um or uh or awareness of your own self when you think about uh, the monk features and whatnot um wisdom should be considered awareness um because intelligence is intelligence is what you use to even hold off mind flayers and intellect devours these are intelligence saves that you're making so when you're having psychic battles in previous editions this would have been a will save which would have been tied to your wisdom but your willpower now is either charisma saves or intelligence saves it's almost never a wisdom save it's really interesting how they've designed this and I think that in future editions, we will see Wisdom get phased out. It'll be the first one of the six stats to get a new name. Yeah, I can see that. I also think it's weird that if you're looking at skills, that medicine is wisdom for some reason and nature is intelligence. Yeah, and that's just it, right? Is Medicine is more than just, um, did you go to, to school to, to figure this out? Or do you know that these berries have these healing properties? It is how bad is this wound? is what medicine checks should be, right? How bad is this? And that is the awareness of it. Like how, how um, what is this specific situation that you're in right now? That's what wisdom tends to be about. Um, it tends not to be about like, well, I know that uh, this kind of berry has this kind of effects when it's combined with this kind of uh, salve that you put on a wound. Now that that's an intelligence check. And so I guess that's nature. It's very strange. You're right, Kyle. Like it's, it's not well defined, um, but if you think about wisdom as being awareness, then that's going to help you figure out what your monsters are doing. When they have a high wisdom score, it's it's going to be very unlikely that you're going to be able to um, flank them 
without them understanding. They're always going to have uh, an ability to retreat. And if they don't, if you close that off, now they're going to go into full fury, right? Uh, you backed an animal into a corner. Mm. Um, and that's what, when you're dealing with monsters specifically, it's a little bit different for players. When you're dealing with your um, your enemy stats, wisdom is going to be how aware they are that things are changing around them. Especially when a party splits up with different um, goals in mind during an encounter. Are the creatures going to be able to figure out that there are multiple things going on? And in the middle of this fight, figure out what each one of the players are doing. Sometimes for a lich, high wisdom, yep, yeah, the lich knows. Dragons, dragons know. Um, but like wolves will be able to figure it out. A wolf is not going to lose track of a player on the battlefield. And that's an awareness thing, right? That's why they have high wisdom. Um, and then that brings us to charisma. Charisma is about reading the room and it's about manipulating people and social encounters. Um, it's also weirdly about charm magic and uh and hypnosis and mind control you'd think that would be tied to intelligence but it's not it's it's your ability to convince people a lot of charisma checks or um charisma saving throws or opposing charisma roles are are there they're present when we're dealing with mind control the entire enchantment school of magic is almost built around charisma and it's uh it's another one that's poorly defined, but it's a little bit easier to understand that it's about uh, interaction with with other people. Now, there is a seventh score that they're just now starting to add to stat blocks, and that's the proficiency bonus. I very rarely deal with a monster or an NPC who relies on a proficiency bonus. Um, so it's interesting to see it now included in the stat blocks moving forward. It was never really something I desperately needed unless I was reverse engineering some math. Um, mm. But even by then, I can just kind of figure out that, oh, well, I mean, if they've got a plus five strength and it's a plus seven to hit, their proficiency bonus is a plus two. Yeah, I always kind of figured it was based on their CR, right? So if you have a CR five, what is that? A plus two proficiency bonus if you're level five? Yes, and that's that's an interesting point is... Um, I look at the proficiency bonuses as a guide to whether or not this encounter will be roughly balanced. That's what I think the proficiency modifier is uh, is a really good indicator for moving forward. Um, because sometimes things that are CR5, I think I haven't seen enough of a, of a sample size yet, but I hope that different CR5s have different proficiency bonuses. And that is going to tell you how deadly an encounter this is at this at this level. So... I think it's a it's a neat tool. I really wish wizards would play with proficiency modifiers and proficiency bonuses more. Um, what else do we have? Who's uh, Kyle? What's uh, what's after the proficiency bonus? Uh, so we have saving throws. Uh, so saving throws are pretty easily calculated. It is eight plus the proficiency bonus plus the modifier of whatever skills being used. So if it's a wizard, it would be intelligence. A uh, fighter would be strength, or a monk dex kind of thing okay so after saving throws you also have senses um in terms of senses there's a couple like passive perception which is essentially just what your character might see from casual observation of moving through somewhere it differs from perception in the fact that perception is a careful examination of something specific uh rather than just being aware of your surroundings it's generally calculated as 10 plus your proficiency bonus uh, and your wisdom modifier, or more simply just 10 plus your perception bonus. Uh, there's also dark vision, which is um, something that you can get as a racial bonus from a spell, 
a subclass feature or maybe an Eldrick invocation. It allows you to see dim light, which is categorized as shadows. Uh, think of dawn or twilight where it's still sort of dark, but you can see well enough to navigate um, and darkness as dim light. What's uh, there's so sorry, I want to interrupt right. you for just a second. Um, one of the arguments that I see online that a lot of people make is why don't cats have dark vision? Because they can see in the dark really well. And my mm -hmm. response to that is no, they fucking can't. They can see in very, very, very dim light. Dark vision is magical. Hard stop. It is a magical ability. The reason Dragonborn yeah. do not have it is because they do not have that magical ability. That's why they don't have it. They've got other magic abilities. They don't get that one because it's not a defining feature. Elves get it and it is a magical ability. This is why we have some creatures that get it and some creatures that you think, oh, you know what? They should be able to see in the dark. No, no, they inherently they can't do it. You need a blessing from a god or a connection to the weave or like you said, a spell or an item is going to give this to you. Dark vision is fucking magical. Stop trying to put it on cats. Cats are amazing and I love cats. I am a cat person over a dog person, but cats are not magical. Okay, so here's, here's my issue with that is that... Um... I think that cats should be able to see dim light like it was full light, but they shouldn't be able to see darkness like it's dim light, right? Because they uh, still require a certain amount of light to be able to see. But I, then I agree with you. I agree with you. In previous editions, we also had low light vision and dark yeah. vision. We don't have low light vision anymore. They go to the middle step for simplicity and streamlining purposes. And that's why we are the way we are now with this almost binary system of dark vision or no. Yeah. I agree with you. Yeah. Dark vision is such a weird thing, right? I don't think anybody really plays with it like it's supposed to be. It's rare. Uh, when I see actual plays and stuff online, people don't play with light mechanics as much as they should. Um, I like there's some really good online tools and map making things, uh, Foundry and, and whatnot, um, that allows you to play with light effects. And it seems to remind the dungeon masters that light and vision are issues. But you're absolutely correct. People don't play with dark vision kind of the way that it was originally intended when the game was designed. Roll20 has a good online map. Yes. With uh, dynamic lighting. Yes. I just wish that you could apply the different dark vision to different players um, in Roll20. And with the API. Can you? Supposedly. Cool. I mm. Look, I, I play with paper maps and minis, um, but I'm very fascinated by these tools as well. I would love to dick around with them a little bit. Interesting. Um, so on top of dark vision, uh, you also have true sight that essentially allows a creature to see anything, uh, whether it be invisible or did through magical darkness uh and if also it's transformed by magic so let's say a dragon who's polymorphed itself into a human you'd be able to see its true nature uh we also have blind sight which is essentially echolocation right um and tremor sense which is just feeling the vibrations through the ground blind sight is echolocation but it's it's other things too like just like it's kind of echolocation but there are some creatures out there that just do not have eyes or ears and can sense you anyway. And it's just the creepy shadow fell shit they can do. Um, yeah. They just, with, if you're within 10 feet, uh, look at um, uh, intellect devourers. They have very limited blind sight, I believe. Right. Um, and they don't have eyes or ears or anything else. They just, they just know where you are. They can perceive the, the world around them in a very limited fashion. Blind sight tends to be very, very, very short range. Mm. I guess it, it, there's a couple allegories in terms of real life creatures like snakes can taste the air around them. Yep. Um, 
and other things like that. I, I guess just it's, like when, simplicity it's like when you can taste the air when Dan walks in the room. <laughs> Jesus. Uh, you guys have a much closer relationship than I knew. Oh, would you like to know? Uh, no, I don't think so. <laughs> I'd like to sleep tonight. Thank you. Uh, and then, yeah, like I was saying, tremor sense as well, which is essentially just feeling the vibrations through ground. Uh, so what would that be? Uh, it would be like the, the worms at a dune. Yeah, you're uh, off from Avatar. Yeah, you you also tend to see that in anything that's an ele- like an Earth elemental base, um, as well as the uh, bullets. But the other one that gets tremor sense, the whole like genre of creature is spiders. If you touch their webs, they know it through tremor sense. Oh yeah, that's a good point. Um, also on top of that, we have challenge rating. Uh, so challenge rating is really good because it helps you figure out if any given monster is going to be a good match against the party. The general rule of thumb, uh, from what I know, is that uh, your the CR rating of a creature should be equal to the level of the party that it's fighting. Well, uh, so a CR five creature would be good against a uh, level five party. But it's it's four level five party or party members. If you have more party members, then the creature becomes less and less effective. If you have a party of two people, um, then uh, like two level five characters, a CR five creature is going to steamroll them. Okay. So how, how do you think would be a good way of rectifying that? Like how many CRs, like how many players should there be per CR? So my general rule is, okay, first of all, the higher you go, CR is really, really good up until level four. And then from level four to six, it's pretty good. And then from level six to nine-ish, it's all right. And then the moment you hit level 10, uh, you're ballparking it. Uh, a CR, like, and there are some creatures that that hit way outside of their CR. Um, I, I'm going to go back to Intellect Devourers again. Intellect Devourers are, I want to say, a CR, like, two? Or no, they're, like, they're super low. Um, yeah, do, do those I things have... are evil as shit. <laughs> Aren't they just? Um, do I have notes in front of me about Intellect Devourers? Yeah, there we go. Yeah, CR two. But they will wipe, I had, <laughs> James, were you there when you guys ran into the wave of uh, Intellect Devourers? um back in in the evil campaign i may not have been they straight up murdered nar their goblin um in two rounds and they nearly wiped out uh, dave's uh, triton barbarian uh on the next round like it's it's two saves and dead right and it's intellect it's uh intelligent saves so people aren't aren't good at that like, that's why the barbarian was in trouble um, yeah no that's often a dumb stat i yeah. think intelligence and strength are probably the most often dumped stats. Yeah. God help the person that dumps con. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. So you asked about my general rule. My general rule is if I have a five person party, um, I use the appropriate CR creature with maximum hit points. Um, if I have a six person party, uh, I will add uh, usually a minion or two, or I will start to mess with the environment in favor of the um, monster um, because environment can make a hell of a difference, especially if they're an ambusher. Um, but if I have fewer, so I, one of the campaigns that I run on a biweekly um, basis is I'm actually running Curse of Strahd right now with Mieka. She's the only player. I've given her two NPCs with sidekick stat blocks um, to be able to have people to interact with, but she's going through Curse of Strahd by herself. I often talk about how, how Strahd von Zerovic is a bit of a bitch, 
Jeff hates it because he's like, you're not playing him right then. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, Jeff, you're absolutely right. But like as written, he's a bit of a bitch. Um, and, uh, but he is going to just like, he is scary deadly now when I only have one player. Um, so I really learned to pull punches and to have different motivations. I don't need to, the bandits are not going to murder my player. If I only have one or two players, they will rob yeah. you and tie you up and mock you and make you feel like shit. And then you're going to be able to catch up with them later and get your revenge, but it's no longer fights to the death. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's a good point to add in uh, non-lethal damage, non-lethal damage and a lot more retreating because let's say you have two spell slots per character, two level three spell slots per character at level. What is it? Five. Okay. That's a lot to deal with, but at level five, you only have one character. You only have two level three spell slots in this encounter so that fireball that you let off is going to mean more is going to send people running as opposed to them sticking around longer right so um i just have the their actions weigh a little bit more um it's more of a role-playing thing um and less about a combat scenario when i get fewer players but again if i have a maximum number of hit points to play with when i have someone if i have a four-person party and and one of the people is sick this week so i'm running it with three i'll either give them a couple of npcs to boost them up and then run it as is or i will start to use the minimum number of hit points so the enemies just drop a little bit faster so you don't have to necessarily look at the number of enemies for the challenge rating so much as the environment uh how many rounds they're going to stick around for and what their goals are how much would you guys say you play with that on the fly right uh so let's say that you're noticing that a fight isn't going well i either side i tend to dm when i run a uh session I'll get anywhere between six and 12 encounters in, depending on the length of the session. I'm going to say that I probably, I, I never pull player or uh, characters off the map, but I will change goals and change tactics on the fly to either be deadlier or, or less deadly. Um, as long as it makes consistent sense within the world, I probably do it once or twice a session where I know that I no longer have to pull punches or it's time to... I don't want a TPK on a random encounter. I have no problem doing a TPK against Strahd. You guys got all the way to the end and you done fucked up and he's going to raffle stomp you. That's on you. Yeah. If you know you're going into a boss battle, you better be prepared. And I'm going to punish you if you aren't. It's not but even I know... going to punish you. It's just, you know, the, the world is a harsh and brutal place and you should have you should have known better. Yeah. But, mm. but what about you guys? Uh, I've definitely played with hit points during a battle. Like I've added some when I've noticed that the battle is just going too quickly and I want it to mean more. Like I'll throw on an extra couple, like an oh. extra hundred hit points. <laughs> you know, one thing that I do is uh, they always have a wand of cure wounds and a wand of magic missile. Um, if they're, if they're even a remotely like mid tier um, big bad evil guy, so a Lieutenant, they always have a wand of cure wounds and a wand of magic missile so that if they get totally fucked, they can still attack they get totally fucked they can still heal themselves and last another round or two to get the necessary information out of in their in their monologue um and these wands are always spent or broken when they're looting the body later <laughs> <laughs> some evil shit <laughs> yeah and sometimes most of the time they will forget that they have these wands but when things are not going correctly they will then remember these wands exist and then they will use them all right interesting um, me, I set up with the recommended and max hit points. So if it's 27, say recommended hit points, and they hit it for 26 on the first attack, 
oh, all of a sudden it's always had the max hit points. Mm-hmm. But if they've gone four rounds against it and only whittled it down to 15, for example, then they can go for the 27 mark. One of the things that I also like to do when it comes to hit points too, and it adds a little bit of nuance to your world, is uh, uh, let's say that they recommend, I don't know, 84 hit points. I'll sit down with a D8 uh, um, at the very beginning of the encounters. Everybody else is rolling initiative. I've, and I know that I've got four, I don't know, um, hobgoblin generals with 84 hit points or something, right? That I don't know why I would have four of them, but this is just an example. So I will then roll four D8s and they're, and depending on the number, it'll be, this one has 81 hit points. This one has 84 hit points. This one has 88 hit points. This one has 83 hit points. So that when they're getting down to the end of it, they're dropping the, the generals. It doesn't really matter. But when the, when all of us say, oh, and this one has a plus one AC for whatever ridiculous reason. So it keeps the players guessing about what math they need to do um, in order to get their kills in. Um, and that's a, that's a really fun way of uh, doing it because James, Dan does the same thing you do. The, oh, you're going to kill him in two rounds. He has maximum hit points then. Yeah. <laughs> and I know a lot of DMs that do that. Um, I don't because, I mean, hell, if you're doing 26, if you crit, good for you. Well, it won't be for every encounter, obviously, but... Yeah. But for the ones that don't really matter, I don't want them to be spending all day fighting this creature, but I also want it to be more than a single round so everyone can get a hit in at least. Yeah, when all of your players have rolled a natural one for the first three rounds and it's a single town guard, you're like, guys, fuck, kill him, please. He goes from having 38 hit points to having six. Just someone please kill him. Yeah, get rid of it so we can move on. Yeah. Uh, Have you guys ever played in a campaign that deals with experience or do you only do milestones? I've mainly done experience and we've broken that more than once. Yeah. One of our DMs uh, decided to allow us to dismantle a cannon and mount it to a cart and then take it to um, an orc fortress. So we just spent all day smashing it with magic projectiles and accumulating experience. We went like 10 levels in a single day, essentially. You, that sounds like one of those groups that would frustrate the shit out of me. I would love yes. to do that for one shots, but I mean, guys, come on. The game started as a one shot of all clerics okay. and then the DM wanted to continue it. We all built broken one shot, all cleric party. So it just only escalated. No, Jesus. No, I was all for milestones. Did you call yourself the amen? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm all for milestones. I like it because I think it's, easier to keep track of because uh, who trusts their own party with math like, <laughs> i'm sure a bunch of them would forget to keep track of their xp and also i keeps them all on the same level right like let's say your party splits and then half your party goes to fight a big boss and levels up before the other ones you know they might create a little bit of resentment and it's just yeah i prefer milestones all right um James, what's uh, what's the last part in this section? Languages. Oh, so languages. I the do most- a big list of over 50 languages. I won't go over every single one of them there. I'll just read out some more of the common and a few of the exotic languages. So there's obviously common. There's Dwarvish, Elvish, Giant, Gnome, Goblin, Halfling, Orc. Then there's... Oh, wait, no, never mind. And then there's Abyssal, Celestial, Draconic, Deep Speech, Infernal, Primordia, Sylvan, and Undercommon. Those are the more common ones you at least encounter with your player characters. And Primordial has the four different dialects too, right? Yeah, Primordial has one from each elemental plane. 
Yeah. And then there's other things like uh, giant eagle, giant elk, giant owl. Some of these creatures can talk amongst themselves, which the main thing for this is things that can talk together can strategize together. And that is the main point of languages when it comes to you as a DM against your, not against your players, concocting the story with your players. If your creatures can talk to each other, the goblins can know that three of them can go from the left and two from the right to do a pincer attack, as opposed to all just running down the center of the hallway. Yes. Yeah. They're able to have specific tactics. And I mean, it might be odd to think that giant owls do that, but there are all sorts of creatures in nature in the real world that communicate um, about different threats that are around and, um, and uh, what uh, like proximity of threats all animals communicate is just how deep that language is yeah and can you learn it easily enough to be able to communicate back and if that's the case then it's considered a language in DD. um do you know the one language that's missing off of every list that technically exists in fifth ed it gets one mention in the dungeon master's guide and is never brought up again and it's called dark speech and it is the actual like um it's not abyssal it's not infernal and it's not even deep speech deep speech is the um the aberration language dark speech is what evil gods speak your cthuloid elder gods speak dark speech when you hear the whisperings and mumblings of cthulhu in your mind because you're a great old one warlock you hear dark speech and it's its own weird different thoroughly evil if you read it you go insane uh kind of language that they don't play with in fifth edition technically exists but no one's messing with it so there you go weird little piece of trivia for you i i like dark speech it, it makes me happy um let's grab our dice i want to roll again i have more questions 14 i three. Got, i got a three roll off again kyle 10 i got a four all right james was it easy to find the information on languages? Is there a good list anywhere? Um, in uh, the- there's a few good lists online. Yeah. I don't think you'll find a complete list in any of the books. No, they've updated it with few, with other books since. Yeah, it'll be yeah. scattered through everywhere, so I don't think you'll get one good one. But there's several really good ones just fully listing them online. Um, I wish that there was some sort of chart or table which told you how common each of these languages are how often you're going to run into creatures that speak them because i have seen characters take giant as a language and then never run into a giant on one of the tables i have of the languages it show tells you the number of times it appears in the stat block beautiful that would give you an idea like blink dog shows up once so only blink dog speak blink dog yeah whereas there's 214 separate instances of common yeah good Oh, that's the other thing to mention is that there are specific human languages listed all the way through the Sword Coast Adventures Guide. Every different race, and I do mean race now, of humans, not species, every single one of the races and every single one of the cultures has their own separate language, but they also have common to be able to communicate in and amongst themselves as well. So there are unique human languages. It's weird that humanity is the only one that gets that. It feels like a very humanity thing where we couldn't agree. Yeah. Um, also, uh, the other one that's interesting of note, did you mention the halfling language? I did not. So the halfling language is usually not even really freaking listed uh, as being a separate language. They do have another language. They don't speak it in front of other people, and they don't want other people to speak it. It's their own private secret thing. It's theirs. It's not that you can't learn it. 
It's that they just don't want to share it. And it's not that there's anything really special about it, except guys, that's ours. Don't, don't, don't use our words. Kind of like the thieves can't from rogues. Yep. Yeah. So like a halfling can speak halfling. Um, and, and, uh, they're, and they could probably <laughs> speak to another halfling. If the rest of the party goes, uh, go stand outside for a minute. I'm going to negotiate like halflings do. Mm. Kyle, was it difficult coming up with the information about saving throws and senses and how to... Uh, Saving throws is pretty easy. Um, I mean, it's listed in most of the subclass features pretty prominently. Um, Senses, yeah, same thing. Um, You can find most of the categories under in page 181 of the player's handbook other than Tremor Sense, which isn't really covered anywhere as far as I could find. it's It tends to get listed right in the monsters um, on the page that the monster exists on, right? I mean, they keep reprinting yeah. that info there. Um, yeah, as for CR, um, obviously it's listed in monster stat blocks. Um, you can also, in the DMG on page 274, it gives you uh, a table on how to calculate it for any homebrew monsters you want to come up with. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, when it comes to the ability scores um, that I went over and the proficiency bonus, there's information about all that stuff in the player's handbook. There's not a whole lot of information about how to use these for monsters and enemies and what different like epic level stats. When you have a 23 intelligence, what does that look like compared to a 25 intelligence? At that, like, there's no real guidance on any of that. So you got to use your common sense in a lot of ways and uh, and lean on the lore to figure out how these um, these stats apply to this creature. Does it have a high constitution because it's really beefy? Or does it have a high constitution because it's a poison kind of, of creature and it can shrug poisons off, right? So there's there's a it's a it's a little bit difficult to really get through all those now there are a couple of other sections in here that we skipped um skills for example um but it's very similar to the saving throws um the big difference is that every once in a while a saving throw gets a huge bump and skills tend not to get big big bumps and that's just when you see a saving throw get a big bump it's because their proficiency modifier was doubled um and it tends to be for legendary creatures and uh we also didn't talk about immunities because I feel that's pretty straightforward. We've already done episodes on all the different conditions. So, um, and, uh, and we talk about damage types in an upcoming episode as well. So um, these are important things to think about during your design, but I feel like when you look at the immunities, the resistances and the skills, it's pretty surface level. So we, we kind of skipped on those. Um, do you guys look at the, ability scores at a quick glance and say okay i know how to run this character or this creature when you're dealing with monsters specifically james for the most part it kind of gives you all the information you need for the basics at least of the creature within the ability scores you kind of get an idea about what their tactics are going to be based on what their high and their low stats are at a quick glance kyle what do you think yeah i would agree um i think it mostly changes how i'm gonna play them Am I looking at more of a combat-centric kind of thing, or is there going to be a little social mixed in? Um, yeah, it just gives me a better idea of how to flesh out um, an encounter. Yeah, I find that it's a good guideline to figure out if I'm dealing with you know an ambusher or a skirmisher or a brute or a schemer or a social 
encounter or I can get that at a, at a quick glance. Um, but then I go right into the lore to get the details, right? And I start digging around other places. Um, do you think that uh, there should be other skill checks that have a passive modifier, like passive perception does? 100%. Which ones? Uh, I think you're, um, bleh, sorry, I can't think of any of, I've always just thought that. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, I'm bringing up a character sheet so I can. Yeah, Kyle, do you have any, well, James looking that up, do you have any insight? I, I think intelligence definitely should. Um, say you're trying to solve a puzzle and you need a clue, um, you should be able to rely on the fact that you're smart enough naturally to be able to figure it out without having to rely on a role, mm -hmm. right? So like like, like passive intelligence, like 10 plus your intelligence modifier. Yeah, kind of thing, right? Just kind of um, like if you have a high enough intelligence score, you should be able to have by, um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? You should just have a frame of reference well enough and inductive logic, inductive reasoning, that's good enough that you should be able to figure out certain things. One of the things that I do, because um, I like to use puzzles a lot, is I try to figure out who has the highest intelligence in the party. And then depending on which tier that is, so uh, like I use the, the monster tier numbers just because it's a good frame of reference. So it's one to five, five to 10, 11 to 15, and, uh, and 16 to 20. Um, I sit there and I look at, okay, who's got the highest? Oh, this person is the wizard and they've got an 18 into it. You are the person I'm going to give a clue to or some context for the puzzle so that you have an advantage to figure this out, right? It'd be nice for me not to have to do that math for there to just be a passive number. I agree with that. James, did you, did you look at it? Good? Yeah, for me, it would be a passive charisma based off your either your uh, intimidation, your deception, or your persuasion, whatever is the highest as your in general like role playing so if you walk into a room and you're dealing with a shopkeeper and you're a giant barbarian tortoise for example and you say i want this for 10 gold off your size alone should be a base enough of intimidation that he'll consider it at least i see i'm just going to give advantage in that like i think you're right but the way around that is to just give advantage to whatever that specific role is um, yeah, my opinion is just avoiding that role so the social scenario can just flow. Yeah, you know what I want more than anything else is a. Uh, the, I want to. I want passive insight, right? Do, passive do, insights on character sheets nowadays. Uh, maybe on the homebrew ones. It's not on the official ones. Um, passive insight is something that I desperately. I, I add to everything. I always ask, "What's your insight?" At the beginning of a campaign, and then I track your proficiency score modifier from there because. Man, having them be able to just automatically know when someone is lying poorly is very helpful. I don't have to pray to God they roll above a four, right, to, to be able to figure it out. The other one is I love passive stealth. Passive stealth yeah. really helps me, especially when they're uh, doing a long rest and there's one person on watch. Now I don't have to say um, roll, a, uh, roll a perception check. I rolled an 11. Okay, you don't hear anything. And everyone's like, what does that mean? What the fuck? Right? And so, like, clearly there was an encounter or something that didn't happen or is about to happen. Everyone's on edge. But I can just sit there and say, hey, their passive is, their passive um, uh, stealth is higher than the passive perception. Therefore, they can sneak up. I really want a passive stealth. Uh, I kind of like the rolling for stealth, though, because, you know, let's say you're sneaking through the woods, right? 
maybe you accidentally step on a branch and that accounts for a low roll, right? Because perception, you are, it's just your awareness of the surroundings, whereas stealth is a skill you are actively using. For me, at least towards passive stealth, passive stealth is when you and your party are just walking through the woods. And then your active stealth is when you're trying to sneak through the woods. So how are you normally trudging through the woods? Yeah, I guess that's what I'm looking for here is the uh, is how much of a disturbance are you guys um, just being yourselves? Yeah, what's your standard noise level? So uh, any more thoughts before I move on to the last section? No. If you like what you see, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and at r slash it's a mimic on Reddit. If you have any questions for us or if you have anything that you want to see on the show, hit us up at info at itsamimic.com. And we'd love to answer any and all of your mailbag questions. Yep. Uh, I Look, the mailbags are getting ridiculous too. And we're cycling through. It's not just going to be me, Dan, and Terry every time. Everybody else is getting an opportunity to jump in on the mailbags. So make sure that you write in to give Kyle and James your shit because I'm tired of you giving me shit. Uh, um, <laughs> so uh, let's talk about the final section in a stat block, and that's the uh, actions. But before we get into the actions, I want to talk about that weird little section about features and traits that are right above the... Um, well, where the actions are. This is where you get a lot of the really fun flavor about what a creature uh, can do and kind of who they are outside of them using their action economy for it. Uh, it's where you're going to get some of the more interesting um, uh, traits. I really lean on this almost more than the actions to get the flavor of the attitude and the, um, the uh, tactics for a creature because you're going to see traits like aggressive, ambusher, amorphous amphibious right you get to figure out if they're going to have the ability to have a a charge do they have false appearance do they have undead fortitude there are so many of these from everything from sunlight sensitivity to uh the fey ancestry um whether or not they can hold their breath or they rejuvenate there's a lot of shit in here we used to see that there was spell casting in here all the spell casting stuff as well as bonus actions and things used to be in the section but it isn't anymore they moved it down into the actions section so i look in here to see what the general tactics are and i make sure that i use these because these are the stereotypical flavor um strategies that these creatures are going to use especially in combat and um it's going to keep them this is what makes kobolds and goblins different this is what makes as far as you're running the combat this section is what's going to make a knoll and an orc and a hobgoblin all feel different because they have different traits that you're going to run up against over and over again. This is where we're going to see our pack tactics, our rampage and reckless. Um, this is where we're going to see whether or not they're a siege monster or a shape changer. There's so much useful information in here, but there's so many monsters that we can't go through literally every single one of these. But the big one that you should be watching out for are the legendary resistances. You're going to start to see resistances pop up here as well. Um, or sorry, the legendary resistances. And this is when they can just shrug off taking some damage. It's so powerful. Do not miss this because that is a major factor in, in determining their CR and whether or not you're using the right monster at the right level. So I'm a, I'm a big fan of this. It's probably my favorite section in the stat block. Um, and uh, it occurs to me now that um so they're changing how spell casting works right whereas before it was spell slots 
uh, the same way that you have for a player character. However, now they're just allowing you to cast spells. You can cast this spell a certain number of, um, of uh, times a day or per long rest. And it occurs to me now that that is really, really going to fuck over Counterspell. Because Counterspell, you have to determine what the level of the spell is that's being cast in order for you to counter it. But if you're not using spell slots anymore, how does that... See, you must is, have a spell value. The, but the new stat blocks don't have that. It's just you can cast you can cast fireball four times a day. Well, but it's still a third level spell. No, it isn't. It just says you can cast fireball, and and it doesn't say whether or not you're casting it at a higher level. Mm. Well, when you just take the damage ratio out of it, so if it's eight d eight, it's still a third level spell, and then nine d eight. But but that's not listed. They, it just says you can cast fireball twice per day. I assume that just means it's the base level then. I would assume so, but that's now you're going to start getting arguments at the table and whatnot because there's a lot of spells that that should be upcast um, or that have a major effects in different ways at higher levels. This to me is uh, this is an oversight. This is a this is an issue. Um, I'm curious to see what they're going to do with that because there were there are definitely spellcasters out there that rely on counterspell um and uh and now that spell casting is going to run a little bit differently for monsters you know honestly me myself i'm going to keep running it with spell slots if it says you can cast fireball twice a day i'm just going to give them two level three spell slots and call it a day just for you know the sake of keeping it easy um, um i'm just looking up on the new one of the new uh spell sheets yeah it says three spells a day dispel magic third level uh dom dominate beast fourth level i think it's at base level hunter's mark first level so you can't upcast it maze eighth level wall of stone fifth level i hope you are correct okay no hold on hold on before we go i found something the ancient topaz dragon has spell casting psionics uh once per day each anti-life shell bane control water create or destroy water nothing about what um what uh level that they might be at meaning they had to be their base level otherwise it would say i would hope so i would i would really wish that they would tell us that somewhere in the book i almost think at this point they're allowing people to use digital sources for that kind of information then that's a flawed business model but here we are arguing about wizards of the coast again so <laughs> let's move on so uh yeah that brings us to actions so there are a lot of different kinds of actions james yeah there's tons of actions out there not a lot overall has changed with actions especially when it comes to monsters they've just laid out how all of this works a lot nicer so now actions have their own section um bonus actions will have their own section where they used to be buried within uh i believe traits yep before and then resistances or sorry reactions will have their own section following it yeah and with the multi-attack you are given what you can do in that order if you do not follow that order you are done your turn like for the adult brass dragon i'm reading here you get multi-attack well one bite attack and with two claw attacks it doesn't have to be necessarily that exact order but sometimes it'll say you know with multi-attack it, it never tells you what order you have to do the bite or the claw attacks in but sometimes it will say um especially with spell casters or um creatures that have innate magical abilities first you do this 
and then it triggers this and this especially you have like grapple mechanics right um that uh like when you start to restrain creatures if a character is restrained this then this if they're not then only this right and so read multi-attack closely uh Sometimes it gives you a specific order. Most of the time it doesn't. It's because it gives you a specific order some of the time. I assume that when it doesn't give it, you can do it whatever order you want. It's very strange that way. So yeah, with more powerful creatures, uh, you're going to end up with legendary actions, layer actions and regional effects, and also mythic actions. Uh, for legendary actions, they are the bane of any party and they add a significant amount of difficulty to any encounter by essentially allowing a given monster to dominate the action economy. They can only be used one at a time, but they can be used on another creature's turn at the end of that turn. And generally they get three of them and will regain all uses at the beginning of that monster's next turn. So while they might already have a multi-attack, allowing them three attacks per turn, they will also end up getting maybe six attacks over a whole round. Uh, if you really want to amp up a fight and add some serious danger, it's great to have these things. Um, they're usually going to be in another kind of attack, so another claw attack um, or some other kind of special ability. Uh, you also have layer actions, um, which are for they're not actually listed in the stat block though you have to go to the lore section to get these don't you yeah yeah they're normally listed immediately after the lore section before the stat block um and the layer actions are essentially what a creature gets if it's fighting on its own turf uh they're confined to the immediate surroundings during a boss fight uh, and they are similar to legendary actions in that they give a creature more actions outside of its turn. It's almost like fighting another creature um, separate from its action economy. Um, they can be a fun way to frustrate a party and add a new dynamic to a fight. Um, they differ from regional effects, however, um, in the sense that regional effects are the results of that monster's presence in a geographical location. Um, in my mind, I see it as almost like their magical presence on an area is so intense that it warps the landscape around them, like ripping the fabric of reality in a sense. Uh, these effects can be deadly, but they're more generally as a way to harry a party before a fight and keep them kind of on their toes um, and also really add a sense of danger and build tension before a big fight. It's a good way to keep them guessing about what they're going to be fighting until the very last moment. Um, now, mythic actions, these aren't essentially new. They were around since Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft and uh, the Mystic Odysseys of Theros. But Fizzbands did greatly improve on the number of creatures uh, that have them. So before there was only four, and now there's 17. Um, and mythic actions are basically like a second stage of a boss fight. Uh, they will generally bring a creature back from the dead and give them some new abilities at the same time. Uh, these are great for two reasons. One, as a DM, sometimes fights just don't go your way. Uh, and maybe it's through a couple of lucky crit rolls or your party just pulled something crazy out of their hat and managed to cut the fight too short for your liking. Uh, or two, because fuck them. And you just take joy <laughs> in seeing the hope drain from your party's face. Now, mythic actions, they use the legendary actions, right? No, they're, they're a separate thing. 
So um, no, 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 no. You these are essentially additional legendary actions that you add on once you hit that that second stage. Uh, from what I've read, is that they replace the re legendary actions. Okay. So it's a separate uh, second set of legendary actions that uh, are only able to be used once you hit a certain criteria. That's really neat. So yeah. So um, the other thing about layer actions is that they almost always happen on initiative count twenty. Mm -hmm. So near the beginning of a round. Um, normally, the the regional effects don't have any impact on on combat. But that's not always true. Sometimes you get um, environmental issues or um, or like terrain, difficult terrain gets impacted or uh, visibility gets impacted based on that. Like, man, do not fight on the monster's home turf. You will regret it. Yeah. Well, I, I okay, so I was looking up uh, death tyrants um, specifically and one of their regional effects uh, does almost nothing. Like you'll find a strange goo on surfaces. But then there's another one where uh, after a long rest, a creature has to roll, one of the player characters has to roll a d20. And if they get um, less than 10, then they're hit by a random eye ray that'll just come out of nowhere. Cool. I freaking love eye tyrants. It's the only uh, creature that I have consistently killed players with. <laughs> and they I, don't got, mean, they got a little... I don't I don't mean characters. I mean, I mean players. I have. I've straight up killed people with eye tyrants. Yeah, they've got a lot of tricks up their bag. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm. I. I just fucking love them, um, guys. Let's grab dice one more time, because um, I want to talk about this this actions section here. Sixteen. Ooh, I got a nineteen. I got a fourteen, and I'm going last. Jesus. Okay, so um, Kyle. How intuitive is it to run the action portion of a stat block? Uh, you know, depending on how high level the monster is, it can take a lot of practice, uh, especially when you're throwing in things like legendary actions, layer actions, and uh, regional effects. It's a lot of things to keep track of at the same time and to be able to use it properly. Uh, um, the way it's laid out is pretty clear, but to be able to use it effectively i think is can be a little tough sometimes especially if you're running more than one monster at a time as well yeah james do you have any problem ever running the action portion of a stat block um mainly deciding what to attack someone with especially if they're a low level party and you're trying not to wipe them like you know your creature's spear attack for example does much more than their dagger attack but you don't want someone to die. So do you pull that punch? That's my biggest issue with actions. I don't imagine you ever pull punches. I do. Just for bigger ones to hit later. Attaboy. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, uh, the idea of, um, of the stat blocks themselves, the, their layout. Do you guys like now that they've separated out the spell casting is now an action and the fact that... Uh, bonus actions and reactions get their own sections are are we happy with this i like it yeah i like it too i think it it's a little adds a yeah cleaner and it adds a smoother ease of use now i uh, it's already stupid i don't know why i'm asking this but do you guys like the mythic actions as a dm yeah. yes as a player absolutely not no 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 but the idea that that mechanic exists for dungeon masters is a good one yeah I assume, James, that you would love it because it's now you've seen my final form. More or less, yeah. 
Kyle? <laughs> yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. Um, I, it's not something I've ever used before, but definitely something I would like to use in the future. Cool. I'm uh, I'm excited. I've never used one of uh, the Mythic uh, actions before as well. I can't wait to pull that shit out on uh, on Dan and some of the others and just watch them poop. <laughs> Um, so I guess my final question is, um, is it difficult in your opinion to run a monster for new DMs? It goes up with your CR, in my opinion, the higher the challenge rating, the harder the monster is going to be to run. Yeah. I a hundred percent agree with that. Yeah. I mean, it clearly, you look at, you know, Strahd's stat block compared to a goblins and it's, it's intense. Right, it can be very, um, very overwhelming for a new DM. Uh, what's your favorite, um, your favorite tier to run monsters in? Just as far as the complexity of a stat block, like what are you most comfortable running, Kyle? Like tier one, tier two, tier three? Uh, I mean, comfort level probably tier one. Uh, in terms of fun, like a tier three monster, because I like having the flexibility of what I'm gonna do um and how i'm going to create a scenario around it the more challenging it is to run the more fun it is i guess james what about you high tier two low tier three similar reasons it starts to become fun for not only the players getting to kill something but you get to do something in return yeah i find that you start to get the really good lore kick in right around tier two and it carries through all the way through tier three by the time you hit tier four, it's it's not so much monster lore as it is like pantheon lore, right? You're you're less concerned about oh what what are the tactics of this creature, and you start to get a, when this specific creature um, deals with this specific instance, they'll deal with it in this way. It's uh I find that tier four monsters can be I don't know they're a little one note a lot of the time. They just hit harder, but they have one or two options. Tier three is a sweet spot. I agree with you guys on that. That's the most fun. Um, final thoughts from everybody before we wrap this up? Um, some good changes. Remember, you don't have to take it all to heart. You can make your own changes. I think that's the big thing, especially for people who are going to get hung up on alignment and other such things. Yeah. 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 Just do you, right? Uh, find your level of fun. I guess, I guess my, big, my big final takeaway from running this episode is... Um, don't just look at the math and run your attacks. There's so much more to a stat block and to a monster than knowing what their attacks are and what their AC is. Um, and you should be looking at the lore section to determine what environmental and social encounters are there. But you're also going to get uh, a little bit of insight based on the skills, their saves, their languages, and some of their traits to determine uh, what some of their tactics might be and other unique ways to use these monsters. So uh, the monster manual is absolutely filled with details. Kyle, you're right. There's 400 pages. And if they had included absolutely everything that they, that you know we want for the monsters, it would have been unwieldy. There's just yeah. so much there. But that just leads me to believe that the information they do include must be by far the most important information. Mm -hmm. It's also broad strokes, right? So you can create your own lore as well, right? Like if they go too into detail, it might make DMs feel pigeonholed in how they run them. One of the things that I really like is uh, comparing and contrasting it against other uh, similar creatures and other campaign settings. The difference between orcs in the Forgotten Realms and orcs in Eberron is uh, like, that's a huge difference. It's massive, but it gives me different way to look at these intelligent 
monster races. And it's a, it's a lot of fun for me to then think about how to use the other ones a little bit differently. Yeah. So I think that's all for this discussion on understanding stat blocks. We've got a lot more Dungeon Master insights in the future. So check back regularly to see what inspirations and insights we'll have for you in the future. Next week, we'll be digging into some of the updates and new details on the dragons from Bizban's Treasury of Dragons. Thank you for listening to another episode of It's a Mimic podcast. If you'd like to support us, we have a donation button on our website at www.itsamimic.com, as well as a store for some awesome merch. We also rely on word of mouth to get news of the podcast out there to the community. So please pass the word to everyone you know that we are available on iTunes, Spotify, and YouTube, as well as most podcast apps. Thank you again for listening to the It's Mimic podcast, where you never know what you're going to get. This has been an It's a Mimic production. Inquiries, requests, and questions for our mailbags can be sent to info at itsamimic.com. you guys say is your highest stat in real life <laughs> it's mm. funny i've been asked this on this podcast about four times twice in mailbags and dan and terry both brought it up in the past um but i'm curious to know what you guys are going to say shall we roll for it sure sure six seven. i got a two. Oh, i'm going first with a seven yeah oh i'm gonna have to say charisma uh i worked in the service industry long enough that I think I became really good at mollifying people. Did you say mollifying people? Yeah. Love it. Love it. Great word. Also, I love the fucking ego that comes with, well, clearly it's charisma. (laughs) You're like Terry 2.0. New and improved Terry. Oh, yes. (laughs) I feel like mine would be Dex, but I've got a bad set of dice. <laughs> so most of the time I'm really good at doing dexterous things, but every so often my hand just lets go of things and I'll just drop it. Occasionally um, roll on that one, it happens. Um uh, every time that I that I have this this argument with people and I say, Oh, I think mine is this, everyone tells me that I'm wrong. Uh when I the first time that I brought it up, I'm like, it's probably intelligence just because I read a lot and what and they're like, no. Your personality is this and blah, 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 blah. So then the next time I said, oh, so it's charisma. And then they get angry at me because, no, you read too much. So fuck. Guys, What? Uh, tell me what's my thing because you're just going to yell at me anyway. They're all drop stats. Thank you, James. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, what would your highest stat be? My proficiency mm. modifier. Now yeah. I feel like um, constitution because we rag on you enough and you still stick around. All right. You oh. know what? I'll, I'll take that. I have a high constitution. I have tons of stamina, ladies. <laughs> yeah, I'll second that one. <laughs> the uh, stamina or the constitution, <laughs> Kyle? The constitution. <laughs> <laughs> well, according to my hidden camera in his bedroom. <laughs> well, then, you don't have to hide it, man. You can just use one of the other four that are up there. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, on that happy, disturbing note, uh, Let's let's end the Zoom call, shall we? Excellent. That was a that was a silky outro, James. Thank you. I'm I'm just erect as all hell. Thanks for listening. Bye.